What up, there, One Pride? This is the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, the podcast where One Pride truly goes worldwide. My name is Anthony Fitzpatrick. I'm joined this evening by Ryan McCluskey. And, of course, we are here for the College Football Podcast. Um, this is a day later than usual. That is on me. Sorry, my, uh, my work called me at the last minute yesterday, made me work last night, so I couldn't do it. And, unfortunately, as of now, I am a slave to the man and have to do as I am told. But... We are here, finally, here with you this evening, Ryan. How are you? Uh, how are you getting on this week? I am great. Training camp's back. Football's back. Bradford play on Saturday. It's nearly the weekend. Like, what's not to love? I mean, it's been a nasty first day, hasn't it, Ryan? Jensen's gone down injured. The Bucks centre, Lucas Patrick, the Bears centre's gone down injured. Our own Greg Bell, our UDFA running back, as apparently Jeremy Reisman tweeted, went off with a serious injury. So, you know, all our thoughts to him. Hopefully it's not as bad as it's first feared. But, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely open with a bang, hasn't it? Yeah. Without saying like an ass, I don't care about two-thirds of those injuries. No. I, I don't wish bad luck on anyone, but if anyone's going to get injured... I just hope it's not Lions. So if they ended training camp tomorrow, I'd be okay with that because it's not an enjoyable time of year at the same time. No one likes it because it's just things happen. Freak injuries. I read some, I can't remember what it is, some, some players like had a bizarre accident outside of camp already. He's torn his pectoral off his bone. Mm. I can't remember what, but it, it sounds weird. Oh. I can't remember who it was, but I saw it online. Oh, that's nasty. I saw when Cody Rhodes wrestled with that in Hell in a Cell a month or so back. It was just like all of his arm here was just purple. Yeah, just veins, yeah. And he wrestled a 20-minute Hell in a Cell match after that. It's like, Jesus Christ, the man's a madman. Anyhow, you're not here to listen about player injuries or wrestling. You're here to listen about college football. And thank you for everyone who's joining us this evening. We are, unfortunately, only on YouTube this evening. So sorry to any of you who do listen to us via Twitch. I have had a nightmare of an afternoon. There's work's taking place near my house. My internet has been cutting out repeatedly. Thankfully, that has stopped now, though. Every single program I uploaded to do this needed updates or some form, so it's taken forever. And then when I tried to go live on both streams, it wouldn't let me. I don't know why. So we've had to go with just a YouTube stream only this evening because we are on a time limit today, and if I don't finish in time, Matt Turner's going to kill me. So... We're just on YouTube, but thank you to everyone who has joined us there. So, Micro Mike is in the building. He says, let's go. Anthony is fire. Appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that there, Mike. We'll be seeing you on LNU later. That's going to be a lot of fun. Chrome's in the building. He says, what up, Raw? John Kapler's in the building. Hey, hey. Hey, hey to you, John. And Depp Fan Man is in the building as well. Says, here we go, fellas. Uh, Greg Bell got hurt. Bummer. Yes, that is a real... Real shame with Greg Bell, but uh, we'll talk about that a bit more on the podcast in a few days' time. But yes, you're here for College Football Podcast, and we today are continuing our preview of the FBS conferences. Um, last two weeks, we have talked about the CUSA, and we have talked about the Sun Belt. This week, we're talking about the American. 
no, it's not just a person, it is the league. We are talking about the American Athletic Conference, the AAC. Um, just before we go into this, obviously, the, the two we've talked about so far, the CUSA, the Sun Belt, maybe some of the lesser-known divisions here, but now we're starting to reach some of the G5 conferences that people are talking about a lot. The, the biggest surprise last year, for the first time ever, a group of five team managed to rank top four in the country and also went to the college football playoffs. First time it's ever been done. It was the Cincinnati Bearcats. They came from this division. This is We're looking at a little bit of a step up in quality with some of these teams here now. Oh, yeah, definitely. Remember the Knights when they called themselves the national champions a few years ago when UCF went 12-0 and and they basically told everyone, there's no championship, so we're the best team in the country. They even made like belts and medals. That was funny. But yeah, some of these are big teams. Like you say, you've got like Cincinnati, you've got Houston. Like you say, you've got SMU that had a really good year last year and a massive offense. So we're, get, we're stepping up a whole other level now, the teams we're talking about. We're talking about some big schools here that recruit well. Yeah, I think I liken this conference to um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the, the porridge situation. You've got some teams that are hot as fire in this division. You've got some teams that are colder than the freezing depths of the Arctic. And then you've kind of got those teams in the middle who, you know, in that acronym there, you know, they're the best part. But in this case, they're just sort of middle of the road. You don't really know what you're going to get from them. But there's, I think there's, there's a clear tier base in this division. We talked about the Sun Belt last week and we took ages trying to figure out a championship game. But I'm not going to ask us now, but I reckon me and you are probably thinking the same two teams for the championship probably this year, such as the tiering system in this conference. I don't know. It depends who you're thinking. A lot of these teams have gone over massive change. One of them has been stripped bare, and that was the one that did best last year. Mm. So I know one of the teams that we'll agree on. I'm not yeah. sure about the other. Right. Well, let's get into it. Oh, just before we do, John Kapler says, Sporting the black jersey. I love it. I think that one there is to you, Ryan. Yeah, we are big fans. Back. Yep. We bring back the black. The hashtag belongs here with us. You know, we want to see it there. And he also goes, SMU, home of the great Eric Dickerson. Yes, it is indeed. So, yeah, let's get into it. So, the American Athletic Conference, founded 1991, one of the more recent conferences going out there. Current champions are the Cincinnati Bearcats, as we said, made it all the way to the college football playoffs last year. First time a group of five team ever achieved that feat so it was a great year as far as they go so there's 11 teams in the conference currently they are not split into conferences obviously because there's only 11 you can't split them to too evenly there so we have cincinnati east carolina houston memphis navy smu south florida temple tulane tulsa and we finish it off with ucf um like the previous two conferences they're in, well, maybe not. The other two conferences have been sort of located right down in the southeast of this America. Is over, sort, of down, sort of down Texas way. This is actually, I've got the map here with me, and it's kind of like a it's square. the biggest, isn't it? It's yeah. got a square with one of the teams in the middle. So you start off in like the top left-hand corner up in Kansas. You know, you've got the, and then you've got Tulsa just sort of down from there. Then you have SMU and Houston down in Texas. Then you go along the southern coastline. So you've got Tulane, and then you reach Florida. You uh, get UCF and USF there. Then you sort of go up the coast again, Eastern Carolina, right the way up to Temple, all the way in New York. Then you come back across the top of the square to Cincinnati, obviously in Ohio. And then right in the middle of that, 
Um, you've got Memphis, who are just sort of in there in Tennessee, sort of, you know, I bet their away schedule's not actually that bad. It's probably equidistant to most places, considering what some college teams have to go through. However, there is going to be huge upheaval in this conference as of next year. So we talk about all the college realignments, all those little bits there. Future departures. So this this division's getting gutted of quality. Cincinnati, Houston and UCF are leaving for the Big 12 in 2023. So that's three losses there for them. But in return, and if you were listening to our first podcast about the CUSA, you will know this now. The AAC is adding six teams, all from the CUSA. So that's Charlotte, Florida Atlantic, North Texas, Rice, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and the University of Texas, San Antonio. So going to become a really southern-based league with a lot of those Texas and Florida sides joining in there. Um, I mean... The league's going to be bigger, it's going to be 14 teams, but it's a case of, I think, you know, it's going to be less quality, more quantity, and I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. Oh no, this is a, with no disrespect to sides that's joining, this is an awful trade. This is like where, it's like someone turns up for like part exchange and offers you like a Ford Focus and a Grand for your like Range Rover Evoke. Like I said, the three teams that are losing, the three teams that are going out are big markets. The six teams that are coming in, like, oh, they didn't want them. They're just there to be. I feel like they've had to reach out and get them. The Pac-12 is pissing about because they're organising with the Big Ten. So the AAC has had to do something quickly. And, yeah, it's certainly going to be quantity over quality. The teams that are remaining are licking their lips because they're thinking, we could piss this conference for years to come. Who is coming in that is adds any real threat or challenge to the conference? And it's not many, so yeah, it hurts. The AAC is it, it's really hurting. You'd probably look at UTSA probably for there, but like you say, yeah, this is a conference that is going to be ripe for the picking, and I think you might see a lot of head coach firings this year. You might see a lot more activity because if if guys aren't cutting it in the final year before these teams come up, then teams are going to cut loose and they're going to get the new guy in and get him ready for when the new league starts so you could see a lot of managerial changes a lot of first time guys out this year because a lot of teams underperformed this year so let's get into the teams we've had a little overlook of the league there just before i do ken stowder is in the building um back in black mcdc hey we got a lot of black uniform lovers in the house today we just it's one of the best uniforms there is i don't care if it was a matt millen thing it looks cool um can he also says toll road kansas everyone avoids that state yes bless them they do um and he says does the mac get divided next i don't know we'll be doing the mac soon anyhow so you'll have an answer when we do our mac episode right we're going to move on and we're going to take a look at the individual teams now so well, actually we do this in we do this alphabetically so we're going to start off with last year's champions we're going to start off with the Cincinnati Bearcats so they were established 1885 this division is full of teams who are very very old they play at the Nippert Stadium their 2021 record was 13 and 1 they went 8 and 0 in the AAC one of two teams to sweep the conference last season as i said they reached the CFB playoff semi-finals although they were 
sort of put in their place by a very good Alabama team when they got there. So the rivalries here, we do a little thing with the rivalries first. So they are rivals with Memphis, although that's kind of more of a basketball rivalry. Memphis leads that series 23-14. to 14. One of the big rivalries they have is with Miami, Ohio. They're one of Ryan's favorite teams last year. So they fight over the, the victory bell. It's one of the oldest current non-conference. bells. Yeah, more bell. There's loads of bells this week. We had three last week. We did. We got loads of bells this week. The Victory Bell. It's the oldest current non-conference college football rivalry in the U.S. The first game was played in 1888. Apparently, the original wow. bell was hung in Miami's Harrison Hall. Um, this was an actual bell from the college itself. Um, the traveling trophy tradition began in the 1890s when the Cincinnati fans borrowed the bell, and by borrowed. Of course, I mean, they, just got, they stole it. <laughs> they just completely took it. Um, and then they decided after that that the winner of the annual game was, was going to get the bell as a reward for winning the game. Um, they did that up until the 1930s, then it disappeared, returned about 20 years later, and is now on display at Miami, Ohio's University. So the trophy they play for now is a replica of that original bell there. On one side of it, it's painted black, with white numbers showing Cincinnati victories, while the other side is red with the with red. It's white, sorry, with red numbers showcasing Miami's victories. So a fun one there. They're also rivals with Louisville. They call that the keg of nails. The rivalry spanned. Yeah, the rivalry spanned over four conferences. So they've been in the Missouri Valley Conference, the Metro Conference, Conference USA, the Big East Conference, which I think is the old Big Twelve. I could be wrong. Um. Oh no, it's the old it's the old AAC. It's this one. Uh, it's oldest rivalry for Louisville, second oldest for Cincinnati. The trophy is a replica of a keg used to ship nails. So it's like one of those old big wooden barrel type things. And I think it's got loads of like bronze nails and stuff in there. So um, yeah, this that's it, it's all to do with symbolising that you're tough as nails for winning the game. So that's that's what the keg is for. Um, and then you've got Pittsburgh. They call that the River City rivalry. It is linked by the River Ohio. It was used by the old paddle boats back in the neighborhood. And you know those big boats with those like paddles on the back, which are like the size of the boat? Got one of those. <laughs> yeah, uh, they used to do that there. So they call it the Paddle Wheel Power Boat Trophy that they have on there. And it's one of those old... You know those engine telegraphs? You see it in the old films where they sort of have a big telegraph and you sort of pull it one side or the other to tell your engine room whether to go slow or fast it sort of yeah. sends messages down it's one of those it's an authentic brass engine room telegraph that was on one of the boats that used to go between <laughs> go between the two cities i mean crest on a bike some of these rivalries are crazy aren't they you know there's just stuff you get kegs of nails a riverboat telegraph another bell it's uh, <laughs> crazy some of these rewards aren't they it's interesting at least these are all set in some sort of history and it's not just a pointless, oh, we're going to trade this statue or this yeah. axe or this spear because we don't like you 15 years ago because no. one of you told us to go s suck your dad or something. It's so stupid. At least they actually <laughs> don't like each other. No, yeah, seriously, and, and this is not even some of the best ones. There are some really hated rivalries in this in this division later, but yeah, some great ones. Great ones there. Um Go Lions is in the chat. He says, what up, Doe? I'm on vacay till the 8th of the 17th, 2022. Enjoy. Hope you're somewhere nice. Where, whereabouts are you? And then Chrome goes, riverboats. Yeah, those are cool. It's They're weird. I'd love to go on one just out of curiosity, but we only see them in like old films and that. So 
I can imagine they were pretty fun things, though. So, yeah, anyhow, moving on. The coach, Luke Fickle, 48 years of age. He was a long-time coach at Ohio State. Started off with special teams, moved on to linebackers, then went to co-defensive coordinator, as well as carrying on with the linebackers. Went on to interim head coach for one year. Uh, he only went 6-7, and seven, though, lost a bowl game. So, Ohio State replaced him with Urban Meyer. He did go back to being a DC and a linebackers coach until Cincinnati came calling in 2016. Took over a Bearcats side. They were 4-8 and eight and they'd gone 1-7 and seven in conference. His first year sort of mirrored that. They went 4-8 and eight and 2-6 in conference. So he got one more conference wins. But then 2018, he really turned that program around. Um, they went 11-2. and two. They won the military bowl. They went 6-2 and two in conference. They completely switched in one season. It was just the third 11-win season in Bearcats history. He's had two more since then. He went 11-3 and three with a bowl win in 2019, 9-1 in 2020, 13-1 in 2021, getting them to the playoffs uh, for the first time ever. And they had a record nine players selected in the draft that's just gone. He's only lost one conference game in the last three years. And it's not just on the pitch, it's off. Their recruiting classes have gotten steadily better and better. And their current 2023 recruiting class is fourth in the nation. I mean, this is a guy who, let's face it, he's completely turned Cincinnati from irrelevance into very much prominence. Yeah, he is. It's been pretty miraculous. Like I said, a, a side that was no one spoke about, no one really cared about. And then last year, like I said, they made a real good run at trying to get into the playoff bound. And then this year made history. And you know what? You may, you might, you probably will, but you might not see another group five conference team make their playoffs for the next 10, 20 years. It could be that long again. He has shot them into relevance. And it actually feels like he's completely outgrown them. There were so many rumours that he could go to the NFL last year as a coach and that he was turned down interviews because he wanted to get to the playoffs and try get a win. The team was decimated. So I know they've got a great recruiting class, but this year feels like a big year for him personally. If you don't feel like he can match that, it could be his last. Because I think no matter what happens, he'll get some great offers next year. Oh, absolutely. I think the job, even if he has a down year, you, you can be forgiven for losing the amount of talent he has, and we'll go through it in a second, but yeah, I agree. He's, he's a great coach, and he's shown steadfast loyalty to them. Like you say, he could have jumped for a big job, and he didn't. He stayed I think we, fair play the Lions, wanted to speak to him, didn't they, I think? There was rumours that we there wanted to talk to him. There were rumours, so he, he could have got a big job, so, you know, fair play to him for staying there. Um Chrome says they're the ones with casinos on them. Yes, I'd love to go on one of those old paddle boats and have a casino. Like in Ozark. There. A casino yeah. in Ozark is a ferry boat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I would love to do that. I reckon they must still have some of them going around. It would be a fun thing to do. Anyhow, right, so we'll move on to the team a little. So the quarterback, obviously, Desmond Ritter is gone. They are not going to replace him straight away, and they haven't. I think they've chosen to go for a seasoned vet to see the transition. So... The quarterback is Ben Bryant, so this is his fifth season. He's transferred in from Eastern Michigan, and as I said, he has the job of taking over from Desmond Ritter. However, he's very familiar with the way Cincinnati play. He was actually a Bearcat for his first three seasons. He played as Ritter's understudy for a while. Um, obviously, he wanted some game time. He wanted to get out there and show himself as a starter, so he bet on himself. 
He went over to Eastern Michigan and, and it paid off. He took the starting job there from Preston Hutchinson, who was the incumbent quarterback when he arrived. And he took the Eagles bowling, got them to a bowl game. He had a 68.4% completion rated, which is really good, really high. 3,121 yards with 14 touchdowns and 7 interceptions. Took in two scores on the ground as well. He's not Desmond Ritter, Brian, but this guy is a very steadying presence. He's had a really good year last year. He's going to be able to sort of guide this offense through this new phase with so many guys out. This seems quite a shrewd move from them. Plus, he knows their system. He's been there before. It's kind of worked for both parties. I don't know. I feel like he may regret this. I know he wants to come back and prove that he was the guy before he left and after he left, but he could get a shock to the system. He does know the system well, but Alec Pierce is gone. The receiving core kind of focused around him. Star running back is also gone to the NFL, so they've had a good rooting class, but he's certainly going to be growing pains because they're going to have a lot of freshmen. They're going to have a lot of uh, transfers as well, so it's going to be a totally different offense, but I feel like it's going to be one of those where you have to temper expectations. Like, say, LSU lost all them players to the draft, I really struggled the year. That year after they won the championship, they stunk. I'm not saying they're going to be terrible, but they're not going to be a shade possibly of what they were last year. So he's going to—he's got a job on his hands, but I think he knows that. He knows that they're coming off such a big year that to get anywhere near that yeah. won't be easy. But it makes sense for Luke Fickle to go to someone that knows it. He could have probably put his hat in for someone like Spencer Rattler. He could have brought in a wild, controversial kid that's got a lot to prove but it went with someone that's steadfast and sturdy and he's hoping that that'll just tick them over nicely yeah yeah i agree and I, th I think it i don't know i think it might be the sensible decision just when you've had so much talent removed you do sometimes need a steady and presence so i hope he does well anyhow he had a good year with eastern michigan you want to see the mac guys doing well so the strengths and weaknesses of this team i mean the strengths here obviously fickle is a coach who's turned them round you know, from nothing to everything. This is a guy who is recruiting well, so hopefully the losses are going to be a bit a bit lesser there for them. And the defense that he always puts out is good, so you always know they're going to have a defense to be able to build on, you know, while the offense is kind of figuring it out. The, the scheduling gods have blessed them this year. The schedule is not as tough as some of these other guys later who have really been rinsed this year. Um, what they are returning, they I know they've lost a lot of guys, but they return the full offensive line. The entire right-hand side of that, so centre, right guard, right tackle, are all all ACC guys. They all saw, saw awards last year, so that's a hell of a line to put out there. And with a steady quarterback behind it, hopefully they're going to get some guys there to uh, to build on that. So the weaknesses, obviously, it's what they've lost. So just to say what they've lost, they've lost Desmond Ritter, Jerome Ford, the star running back, Alec Pierce, the star wide receiver, Ahmed Gardner, Kobe Bryant, the star cornerback pair, Mai Sanders, one of the best edge rushers, Darian Beavers, the linebacker, Brian Cook, the safety, you know, she's star quarterback, running back, wide receiver, corners, safety, edge rusher, you know, they're just returning 54% of their total production this year, which is 107th in the country. That is how much they've lost. Now, they have dipped into the transfer portal. So they've bought in Corey Kiner, the running back. He has come in from LSU. He's a bell cow style running back. So 
that offensive line's healthy and he's healthy, you might see him in the game really quickly. And an interesting one they've got in Rye. They've got in Nick Mardner, the wide receiver from Hawaii. He had 900 yards and five touchdowns last year. There's a there's a chance for him to be able to show off there. They've lost a lot, but with recruits and some, you know, handy portal pickups there, potentially it might not be as bad as feared. No, they've gone out there and they've addressed it. Like I said, they haven't gone out and got a lot of star 2022, 2023, four or five stars, but they've gone out there and got transfer portal guys with immediate eligibility that... With a good offensive line, with a quarterback that is fairly settled, it's an attractive place. Like Hawaii, with no disrespect to the Rainbow Warriors, are not a very good football program. So if you get nearly 1,000 yards in a season, you've done pretty well. So that is a huge jump up. So joining the Cincinnati, he will have counted his lucky stars and thought, this I'm joining someone that is built to get double-digit wins, not try and get five, six, seven wins. Because... Even with all that talent they've lost, they still want nine, ten wins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I, th- I, th- I think they're going to do. I think they're going to do all right. Not like last year, but they'll do all right. Um, Ken's getting in on the rivalry trophies trap now. He says the Minnesota top ones are the Little Brown Jug, Paul Bunyan's Axe, and the Floyd of Rode- Floyd of Rosedale. You've mentioned Paul Bunyan's Axe before, I think. We'll. Uh, is, is it? Is it? You've seen that? Yeah. We'll get to Minnesota in a few weeks with the Big Ten, but yeah, there are some truly amazing trophies out there. So the schedule, I can say the schedule's not been too bad for them here. So they do start off at Arkansas, meeting KJ Jefferson, which is a very tough one. But then they've got a few home fixtures. They've got Kennesaw State, Miami, Ohio, and Indiana at home. Not the hardest home slate. Then they're away at Tulsa. At home to USF. Then they're away at SMU and UCF, which is tough. Then they're at home to Navy and East Carolina. And then end away at Temple at home to Tulane. I mean, those first three home games give them a chance to, you know, set their stall for this year and potentially put quite a few points down. So if they can come out of that 3-1, and one, then maybe you don't fear for them too much this season. No. From what I saw last year, SMU... High-powered offense, but they lost some players too. They're returning at one of their star quarterbacks. UCF, in transition, lost their star quarterback. So there's big names on this schedule, but they're not all that scary. Nope. I'd actually think about that. They should be going 10-2, and 11-1. Even with these part-time players that maybe in the last year of eligibility or these transfers, there's no excuse for losing. No. 90% of that schedule, I'd say. It, it's very winnable. No, it's a shame they don't have last year's team to start off against Arkansas. That would be a hell of a game, that would, because they'd give them a run for their money. I reckon they could potentially, well, maybe not beat them, but it could be very close. Uh, anyhow, to um, round out Cincinnati, we're going to, of course, we always say a player to watch, and you might be familiar with, with this guy, Ryan, because he's on a team you took a long look at last season. So the linebacker, Ivan Pace Jr., has transferred in from Miami, Ohio. So this is a big platform for a guy who is a rising star in the game. He's 2021 season. He had 125 tackles, a further 13 tackles for loss, four sacks, an interception, three passes defended, a forced fumble. He has never given up a touchdown in coverage. And he plays with incredible game speed when he's coming downhill. And I mean, you look at the likes, Beavers has gone there. There is a big hole that this guy could potentially come in and fill even better than the guys before. 
Oh yeah, he's he's upset the Red Hawks. He's joined a bit rival that he'll see in what week four or five. So he's going to play against his old team very quickly, and he's going to punish them. Him and Sterling Weatherford were fantastic. They were proper spine of that team for years to come. And he is everywhere. He does everything. He is a do-it-all backer. He's big. He's strong. He's aggressive. And yeah, he'll replace Darian Beavers like a glove. He'll fit there day one, and he'll be one of, probably one of their key players on defense all year because he's also not got too much mileage on the clock as well. He has not missed much football in his Miami Ohio career. No, and I think, if I remember rightly, he's playing with his brother now as well. I think his brother plays for uh, Cincinnati as well. I think they're both linebackers, so potentially. Watch for the paces at linebacker there. So, moving it on, we now go to another team who had a pretty good year last year. So, we're now looking at the East Carolina Pirates. They were established in 1932. They play at the Dowdy Ficklin Stadium. Their 2021 season, they went 7-5. and five. They went 5-3 and three in the AAC, so they were above 500 both for the season and in conference. The rivalries, they have one with Marshall, we talked about last week, and then the other one they have is North Carolina State. Now, that's a, a very heated in-state rivalry. Um, it was suspended at one point in the late 80s when ECU fans absolutely wrecked North Carolina State's field. They chopped down the goalposts, they ripped up the turf, they did just about everything to it, so it was suspended for a few years after that before they brought it back into play. Uh, they play for the Victory Barrel, which is a wooden cask barrel, so like the ones you put beer in. The outer faces are fixed with engraved coloured plates denoting the year, final score and winner of each contest, dating back to 1970. North Carolina State are winning the series. 18 to 13. So, yes, another cash barrel there. So, the coach, Mike Houston, in his fourth season. So, he's a guy who's worked his way up from the bottom. Started as a defensive coordinator. Was at Lenoir Rhine, who were down in the FCS in 2020. His defense was actually ranked fourth in the nation in run defense. That was out of everybody. So, he put out a hell of a talented unit there. He got promoted to head coach in 2011 there. Shared a conference title in his first season. Second season, he got them to the FCS playoffs, and he got them their first playoff win in 50 years. And even, you know, in the season after, he did even better. He got them to their first ever national championship game. They didn't win it, but it was still a big, big accolade for them at the time. He got several Coach of the Year gongs for that. He got a promotion to the Citadel, got them to their first conference championship since 1992, and first playoff appearance in 23 years. Got another Coach of the Year honour for that and another promotion. He ended up going to James Madison, one of the more well-known FCS guys out there. They're heavyweights in the division. He bought home an FCS championship for them in his first year. Got them to it a further two years, which they lost both of them, unfortunately. But, you know, he he really did turn them... Well, he took them next level to a power. Bought them a championship back. And on the back of that, he got his first job in the FCS, FBS, sorry, which was here at East Carolina. The team he took on had just gone one and seven in conference. He had a couple of losing seasons himself to start, but the 2021 season, the one he's just had, is the first time they have gone over plus 500, both with an overall record and in conference record. So slowly, this is a team that is getting better. He's recruited solidly team's going in the right direction their overall roster strength is 64th in the country which is much higher than when he arrived but 
he has a very brutal schedule to deal with this season, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, right, Mike Houston, this is a guy, a lot of success in the FCS, has steadily got better and better, seems to be turning the Pirates around. This is this is a good coach they've got here. Yeah, very experienced. Like I say, he made that transition where he went through all the uh, jobs as coordinators, then he went to the highest level of FCS, won there, outdrew the FCS, decided to come to an FBS school that was struggling, but I watched a lot of them last few years. Like I say, if anyone wants to look, they play in beautiful purple chrome uniforms. They look fantastic. But they've also they've sent players to the NFL draft. Blake Prohl, the wide receiver, he went to the draft two or three years ago. Last year, they had Jaquan McMillian, one of the best defensive backs in the whole nation that I mentioned, I think, on one of the shows. And they've got a great quarterback, very experienced gunslinger. This is a team that, is built to cause upsets. Like I said, they, they can put a lot of points on you really quickly. And I've enjoyed watching them. So they are someone that is probably middle. They tread ground in the AAC. But that's not to mean that they're any one that you can just walk or roll over. Because they've, they've put up points and they've had some high-scoring games in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly a team that is turning the corner, as you say, and hopefully, you know, you see more of this where they're sending guys up to the draft there. So let's take a look at the team. So the quarterback, you mentioned him there, Halton Aylers. It's his fifth season. He's been a starter his entire college career um, for East Carolina. Don't know why I've put EMU there. He's vastly experienced. So the completion percentage is a bit meh. It's 58 and a half over his career, but he's thrown for 10,225 yards, 69 touchdowns and 32 interceptions. He's got 1,300 yards and 19 touchdowns on the ground as well, so he can do it in the running game. He's even got a receiving touchdown. So he ranked last year, he was 70th in quarterback rating, but he was actually 19th in yards per game so as you were saying there right he he may not be the best technically with some of the accuracy and that but he's a gunslinger and he will do some damage to you if your secondary is not great yeah he the coach allows him to just slay it they'll have games where he'll throw it 10 15 times they'll have games where he'll have to throw it 40 50 times he is not afraid to air it out and he gets interceptions he loses the ball he gets turnovers and the coach gets mad at him but then he'll go straight out and he'll bomb a 60-yard touchdown. You take the good with the bad with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of the team itself, the strengths and weaknesses. So the strengths on this team, the defense was maybe the better side of the ball last year. It's returning 70% of the production on that in the unit as told. So expect it to be solid again. They were 27th in defensive pass success, so they refused to allow teams to throw on them too much. You know, got a lot of turnovers from that as well. The turnover margin's pretty decent. The run defense success was a little further back. It was 65th, but I think they had like 75% of guys on the D-line last year were freshmen. So these are a young unit who will have learned a lot last year or a lot more experienced. So expect to see more of an upturn when it comes to the run defense this season. In terms of the offense... They're set at quarterback, we've mentioned there. They return a 1,000-yard rusher in Keaton Mitchell. They've got three starters coming back on the offensive line. Um, they've also got some good players out the portal as well, so that's good to alleviate some of the losses they had. The weaknesses, though, there are a few. 
I just mentioned they had a thousand yard rusher, but outside of that, the run game was pretty awful. They ranked 103rd in run success rate. It was more down to Keaton Mitchell than the guys in front of him helping him out. Um, and the passing game was 79th, even though they've got a decent QB there. So they've got to get better. That's not good. It's mid to bad. And they've lost two of their best receivers from last season as well. So they're going to need to show big improvements this year, really, to be able to get them above 500 again. And I'm just going to go through the schedule with you now. They've got it. Yeah, they've got a little bit. I don't know. Let's let's go through the schedule. right? So they've got four home games to start. So they're playing North Carolina State, Old Dominion, Campbell and Navy. Then they're on the road to South Florida and Tulane. Then they're at home to Memphis and UCF. Then the end of the season's nasty. They've got to go away to BYU, away to Cincinnati. They're at home to Houston. Then they're away to Temple. This is going to be a case, yes. I think this is going to be a case where they are going to need to start strong. They're going to need to put down some points on the likes of Old Dominion and Campbell, try and set themselves a base going forward. Because later on in the season... They're going to need to score points. Yeah. The first four games, they have to be at least three and one. Because the other eight games, it was pretty awful. It just got worse. From when you got to like UCF and Tulane, it just gets harder. Like Temple, fair enough. Like I say, they've got to be like three and one and Temple. So they need four wins from the last and the first four games to try to get four wins. And then in the middle, they just got to try to pick up some cheap wins. This is a team, I think they will pick up some surprising wins in the middle. Yeah. But there's times, let's say, like BYU returning like Jaron Hall. That that will be a blowout. There's going to be some heavy losses there. But there could, like I say, be some heavy scoring wins. Campbell, the fighting Campbell. Camels, which I love. They're, they're a great name. <laughs> like I say. But yeah, that's the kind of side you really need to beat down on. Yeah, absolutely. That that start's going to be critical to them, and if there's too many losses after those first four or five weeks, it could be a long season for them. Just rounding out this about East Carolina then, so the player to watch, I mentioned him already, the running back Keaton Mitchell, he's a sophomore this year, he went for 1,132 yards on the ground last season, average of 6.5 yards per carry. Also had 253 receiving yards. He had 11.5 yards per reception. So he's got a decent dual threat ability here, even if they don't use him too much. So, I mean, they're really going to need him to show forth this year because, you know, they're missing some of their best wide receivers. He, he He's the difference maker on this um, offense. So you're really going to need him to shine. So, yeah, Keaton Mitchell, the running back, he's the one you want to watch for with East Carolina this year. Right. <laughs> Moving on, the top of this division, alphabetically, it's really strong at the top of this. So this is the other team who went unbeaten in conference last year. This is the Houston Cougars. They were established 1946. They play at the Tadeku Stadium. The 2021 season, they went 12-2. and They were 8-0 and in the conference, so it was kind of the out-of-conference schedule that let them down. They were beaten in the AAC Championship game by Cincinnati. But this is going to be a very good team and potentially one of those who is going to be competing for the AAC this year because they, unlike Cincinnati, have not suffered the losses that they have. So the rivalries, they have rivalries with Rice. Houston leads that 32-11. to 11. Texas Tech, Houston leads that as well, 18-14-1. And Tulsa, and they lead that as well, 26-19. to 19. But there's nothing particularly fascinating about any of those. So we'll just breeze on through those. The coach... 
Now, a lot of people love this guy, so it's Dana Holgers. Dana Holgers. Yep. I like him. He's, he's funny. He's a, he's a good guy. Yeah, I know. There's, uh, doing this research, there's a lot of love for Dana Holgerson here. So he's in his fourth season. He's an offensive-minded coach. So, yeah, I just, I'll talk about this later. But so many of the coaches in this league have offensive backgrounds. And you can probably see why with some of the play here. But he started off at Valdosa State and Mississippi College. He went to Texas Tech after that. Had great success first as a wide receivers coach there. Then he became the offensive coordinator. His offenses were ranked top 10 nationally pretty much every season. Moved on to Houston as offensive coordinator. It was known for its high-scoring offense. And Holgerson released his version of the air raid while he was here with none other than Case Keenum. So Case Keenum, they led the Case Keenum led the nation in total offense when he was under center. They averaged over 560 yards per game of offense. He also developed a set while he was there called the Diamond Formation. Features multiple diverging running backs in the backfield. They use spread formations to gain yards after catching short passes. That's his. They kept the system after he departed. That's how much he loved it. He went to Oklahoma State as Oklahoma as offensive coordinator and in one season he inherited an offense that ranked 61st in total offense nationally he was only there one season by the time he left they were the number one ranked total offensive unit they jumped 60 places to be the best offense in the nation the one year he was there justin blackman won the beletnikov award that's for best wide receiver in a year and the quarterback and the running back reached the finals of their successive trophies for best quarterback and running back in the nation that's just how good it was his he set records school records for total yards scoring passing yards pass attempts pass completions moved on to west virginia after that um had a bit of a there was a little bit of a tiff there because yeah. he went to oh he went to be the offensive coordinator there but him and his head coach hated one another they did not get on at all apparently so they fired the head coach and gave dana the starting job there so he, he got the head coach job. He got promoted from that. Seven seasons. He went 61 and 41. Had six winning seasons, but just one bowl win. Um, but when Houston came, Houston came and asked him to be head coach there. He resigned. He's gone back there. It's been a slow start. He had two losing seasons to start with. But in year three, which was last year, everything clicked. That feared offense that he's known for in his career reared its head. The team went 12-2, and two, swept the conference, swept everybody that played in front of them in the conference, and they were really only stopped from the title by a playoff side. So, I mean, this is a guy, I know I've gone on a little bit there, but Dana Holgerson, wherever he's been, has produced wonderful offences, and that one last year was quite, it might have been his piece de resistance, really. Yeah, Dana is one of those disciples of Mike Leach. Who everyone knows is one of the, like the grandfathers of air raid football, spread, deep flood routes, just empty backfields, five six hundred yards of offense. Like, so, and you could say this year that they're uh, fine tuned. That's what I'd say about <laughs> Houston. I've made that joke like, in the next segment. Damn it! He didn't go well in West Virginia. He he had Will Greer. He got into the he got into the NFL as a quarterback. He sent him there, and then things like say he departed for Houston. All the teams that have been on, the one thing that's let them down always is defense. Like I say they just to score as quickly as many as they can, and then they have to try to be flexible on defense. But yeah, Houston last year just the defense couldn't cope with Cincinnati. Like I say they wanted to try just outscore them in the title game and it didn't happen. But yeah, Dana has got he's inherited a great team. 
great quarterback that we're going to speak about. Sent one or two guys to the draft. But like I say, they didn't lose much talent. They're returning one of the best receivers in the nation as well. So they're, they're my favourite. I'll say it now, they're my favourite to win the AAC. No, I'm, I'm not far behind you there. So we'll talk about the quarterback. You mentioned him there, Clayton Tune. This is his fifth season. His second year as a starter. He's a two-time team captain. He's a touch shy of 8,000 passing yards in college. He's got 62% completion rating, 64 touchdowns to 31 interceptions. He's got 700 yards and 10 touchdowns on the ground. But last year was the breakout year. So he had 3,544 yards. His completion rating was 60. 68.3%, which is massive. He had 30 touchdowns and just 10 interceptions. But you know what the scary part is? I, I went back and looked through this, and a guy confirmed it. The history shows you that every quarterback who plays under Dana Holmgren, Holgerson, has his best year in their final year with him. And this is his final year with him. So he's primed to have an even bigger year than last year. And Christ knows what that's going to look like. He could be a... He won't win the Heisman, but if if he tops 4,000 yards and like 35-plus touchdowns, he will get those outside of votes to finish like 7th, 8th, ninth in the Heisman. He could have one of those kind of years. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, it, it, Yeah. This is going to be a fearsome offense to watch this year. And they say he's got his weapons with him. And that's the main thing, you know, as your quarterback. If you're bringing your weapons back, then it makes it so much easier for you. So we'll go through the strengths and weaknesses. The strengths, well, it's the passing offense. You know, they diced up every defense they came along last season. And you mentioned the return in production. They're returning 70% of offensive production from last season, including the two best wide receivers. They've got a star tight end. They've got an experienced offensive line. But it's not even that. The defense is actually pretty good as well. So they were ranked 14th in the nation in run defense success last year. And they were third in pass defense success. Eight times last year, they kept their opponents to sub-21 points. Three times it was in single figures. And I know people say 21 points. That's not much in college football. If you're asking Clayton Tune to score 22 points to win a game, you're going to win games pretty much every single week. The defensive coordinator there, his name's Doug Belk. Um, they've just tied him down. They're paying him millions there, which is unusual for a coordinator. They really like him, and so they've tied him down to a big contract to keep the vultures away. They've got 10 seniors coming back who have got a vast amount of snaps under them. Got so much experience to work with there. So even the defense is there as well. So, you know, hopefully that'll be good for them. The weaknesses, so the run game is really poor. Whilst they've diced everything in the air, the run game is not anywhere near on par with it. The rushing success rate was 107th in the nation last year. So it was really covered up by what Tune and Co. did in the passing game. And they've already suffered a massive injury this year. So Alton McCaskill, who's the lead running back there, he had 1,100 scrimmage yards last season. He's already done for the season. He did his ACL in spring camp, and they reckon that if he will be ready, it'll be like Pickens last year. He might feature for a game or two late in the season, if he's lucky. Now, they've got a bit of potential in that room, but 
its unrealised potential at the moment. So they might not be able to get away with having a bad run game again if Tune's going to bail them out every single week. And the defence, for as good as it was, did give up a lot of big plays. They were 102nd in explosive plays given up last year. They were 60th in 20-plus yard plays given up. So they were quite aggressive as a defence, and sometimes that got them bitten because they were a little too aggressive and they were hit heavy downfields. But, I mean, on both sides of the ball, really strong. If they can just get that run game fixed and land on a running back just to spread the defense, spread the offence out a little more, the title's theirs for the taking. Yeah. I'd probably got, if, if they can have got the poll, yeah, just just try bring in one established back. There has to be one out there that can come in and just start instantly. Yeah. The offence is not balanced. It hasn't been, well, Dana Hogson's offences are very rarely balanced. And that has also usually been his downfall because they're very one-dimensional. Sometimes when you know what they're going to do, you're able to stop it after a bit of repetition. If they take away the passing game, they become kind of like a turtle stuck on its back in the sun. But they're, they're kicking their legs and they're trying, but you found their weakness. So there has to be some balance this year. They can probably pass their way to the title. But if they want to be the one side that wants to try to crack the playoffs, again, they need a run game. They've got the defence, they've got the passing game to challenge for that number four. They could go 12-13-0, but they have to be able to run the ball and control the clock. Because two things that passing offence can't do. It can't kill time, and it can't do short yardage. Nope, agreed there. They, they need to balance that offence out. And to be honest, you said there if they want to make a run at the playoffs, well, the schedule the first two weeks is going to tell you everything you want to know about them. So they start with successive road trips, and they are away to UTSA and Texas Tech. Those are not easy games. Then they've got a home series against Kansas, Rice, and Tulane. Then they're away at Memphis. They're away at Navy who nearly upset them last year. They had to score 15 points in the fourth quarter to avoid losing to Navy. Then they're at home to U South Florida. They're away to SMU, at home to Temple, away to East Carolina, and then at home to Tulsa. Um, I mean, the schedule's all right there, but those first two road games are going to show just what they're made of. Yeah. We're going to learn about a lot about UTSA and Texas Tech, who have also lost a lot of players and bringing in recruits and replacements as well. So those first two games will be interesting. If they can go 2-0 in those first two games, I like the rest of that schedule. Yeah. If they build up steam going into week three, they they could be really good. They could wrap up a title, a championship spot very quickly mm. if they don't slip up. Oh, yeah. Kansas, Rice especially, they're there to be absolutely plundered. If you had fantasy football, you'd be putting all their offense in that week for those for sure. So just rounding this out, the player to watch, probably no one going to say already, but he's a wide receiver. He's very diminutive, but very big in heart. Nathaniel Dell, 5'10", 155 pounds. So not the biggest guy in the world, but his, his 2021 season, 90 receptions, 1,329 receiving yards, averaged 15 yards per catch, 12 touchdowns. Uh, and his kick return average, if you know that wasn't good enough for you, is 25.8 yards per return. So Nathaniel Dell may be small, but damn it, he's dangerous, isn't he? Yeah, he was just as good as Jordan Addison in most phases last year. But because he comes from AAC and he plays in Houston, no one really gave him any recognition. Nope, nope. But, you know, 
give him recognition this year because if this is going to be Tune's best year, he could be uh, he could be well over one and a half thousand yards. So keep an eye on Nathaniel Dell. Next up, we've got the Memphis Tigers, established in 1912. They play at the Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium. Their 2021 record, they were 6-6. Six and six. They were 3-5 and five in the AAC, so they didn't do so well in conference. The rivalries there, Arkansas State, the Paint Bucket Bowl, we discussed that last week. Cincinnati, we've discussed that as well. They have a minor rivalry with Louisville. Louisville lead that 24-19. Ole Miss, they call it the Mid-South Rivalry. Old Miss players don't call this a rivalry because they consider them superior to them. And the record is 47-12-2. So, yeah, that kind of figures a bit there. Um, and then Southern Miss as well. We've discussed that one as well now. First coach we're coming up to who's on a hot seat this year and apparently is really not liked by a lot of people who uh, research AAC, as I've done here. So we've got Ryan Silverfield. He's in his third season, yet another offensive-minded coach. He's got a mixture of college and NFL experience. I, and he's actually, he's actually been with the Lions before. It's an intriguing thing. He's the only coach in this division who's actually been with the Lions in some regards. So in the big leagues, he was an offensive quality control coach with the Minnesota Vikings, and he was an offensive line coach with the Detroit Lions. And actually, he's been to Arizona State, I believe, as an, an offensive line coach as well. I think he was with us in 2015 to 2016. I can't remember who was on the offensive line back then, but it was not good. He's also been to Toledo and UCF in various capacities in offensive uh, ways. Uh, Mike Norvell brought him to Memphis in 2016 as an offensive line coach. Two years later, he added run, go run game coordinator to his title. And then in 2019, he became assistant head coach. So he worked his way through the ranks there. Then when Mike Norvell left to go and wreck Florida State, he got the call to become first the interim head coach and then the permanent head coach. First year they went eight and three. They went five and three in conference, but last year was pretty grim. They went six and six. They slipped to three and five in conference. Um, this third year going to be critical to deciding which way that Memphis is probably going to go in future years from here. The chatter I've heard is that another sub-500 year and Memphis are going to pull the plug on him. And that's because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, there is a big power void about to appear at the top of the AAC. And Memphis are one of the teams who should be in that conversation. They they shouldn't be struggling at plus 500 or less, should they, Ryan? Especially in conference. No. Like I said, there they're probably biding their time like when the three big boys go and those six teams come in they'll be like this is our chance we're going to try reclaim reclaim a crown memphis is do you know what they had a franchise quarterback in brady white who was a gunslinger for years he was really good that, i think for, last year was the first year without him and he just didn't recover like i say he went he did go and drafted he didn't get picked up but for memphis he was fantastic he led a really potent offense, and they were—they could blow away sides two or three years ago. But no, they lost their sting. Like I say, they had to find someone else to take the helm, and it just didn't click. And on defense as well, they just give up big chunk players. They just—they—they they can't find that balance. And yeah, for a height for a Memphis team that should be doing well, they are letting themselves down massively. I think it was two years, I'm not sure, it might have been two years ago with a quarterback, but you'll know who was meant to start for them last year because he's currently playing 
across state at your rival. So it was Gavin Gunnell, the quarterback there. I think he's now gone to Arizona, but he got injured last year and he didn't play and then he transferred out. They actually they actually played f a freshman by the name of Seth Hennigan. So this is going to be his second year. He was not supposed to start last year. Gavin Gunnell was meant to be the starter, but I mean... Listen to these numbers for a freshman who's come in. He threw for 3,322 yards. His completion rating was a smidge under 60%, but he's a freshman, so you can forgive that. His touchdown-to-interception ratio, 25 touchdowns, 8 interceptions. So that's better than a 3-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. It doesn't really rush, but, you know, for a freshman who's coming in the team and not expecting to start and is in his first year in a team that's undergoing a lot of changes... To throw for nearly three and a half thousand yards at a three to one touchdown to interception click is a damn good year. Yeah, it was better than I can tell you now. It was better than Canella to go. He won <laughs> that good. I think there was actually a blessing. Don't rate him, so don't as Arizona. But no, yeah, they, it was a shock to the system. But like I say, he had an experienced receiver. Like I say, he made the most of a receiver that is now. Had a great year, moved on to the pros, Calvin. But no, I actually think he should come into this year with so much confidence. He saw a team last year that were reeling, a head coach that is asking questions about him, and he went out there and he did a damn good job on a team that laid itself down, but not because of him. I don't think he could have done much more to get that team in a better position to win. No, and... I'm just going to go through the team now, but he's got a really good offensive coordinator to work with this year. So I've not really done strengths or weaknesses for this team because there's been that much change in there that it's kind of hard to predict where they're going to be good and where they're going to be bad. So I've just kind of done an overview for it, an overview for them instead. So there are two new, two new coordinators in town, as I've said. So we we'll start on defense. The new guy is Matt Barnes. He's come from Ohio State. He was there for three years. He was special teams and safeties coach, but he is a first-time defensive coordinator. However, this guy is inheriting a defense which is ranked 35th in the nation in roster strength. So they have the 35th best-ranked roster for defense in the nation. Now, that's made up of a mixture of experience and recruiting. So it's a little bit of everything. So there's a lot of talent. Memphis has been doing some serious recruiting in recent years and it's paid off because of the guys they've got on there. However, it's on paper. Talent isn't realised until it's on the field. So you've got a first-year defensive coordinator, you've got a ton of potential to be developed, and you've got some decent guys returning, but not a lot of experience on the whole. So pretty much anything could happen here. On the offence, however, their new offensive coordinator is Tim Cramsey. So he comes in from Marshall. He's been there four years as offensive coordinator and quarterback coach. So who's he been developing the last two years? Grant Wells. Grant Wells, who's been really damn good at Marshall. And that offense, which has been really good there. So that is a big hire for them. They've also transferred in Jay Ducker, the running back from Northern Illinois. He had over one and a half. He had 1,100 yards last season. No, you know, Northern Illinois had a hell of a year. So they're getting a good rusher in him. And Cramsey's just got 1,400 yards out of Rasheen Ali at Marshall this season. So you're giving him a really good running back to work with. Their incumbent running back is Brandon Thomas. He had 700 yards last season running at six yards per click. So they've got a really good one-two punch at running back there. The offensive line was what was suspect and they need to work it out. It was not good in the run game, which is weird for Memphis because they usually run the ball 
pretty well. So he's got that to sort there. And also the losses in the draft. Calvin Austin the third, the wide receiver, the gadget guy, the do-it-all man is gone. Sean Dykes, the tight end, is gone. That was their two best wide receivers. So they are relying on the depth guys to step up and take the number one spots this season. But I mean, it's kind of a little tale of like a, a tale of both sides on both sides of the ball. So on the, the defense, you've got the talent, but have you got the coordinator to do it? And on the offense, you've got the coordinator, but have you got the talent? But it's a very intriguing team this year, potentially. Yeah, they could surprise people. It could all click. Like I said, Hennigan could just emerge as this up-and-coming star in his second year. There, there'll be no jitters. There'll be no nerves week one. He should go in there confident and he should be able to work with whoever he's got. And if you've got a decent run game to take the pressure off him, that means he can focus more and probably not be forced into making any throws he don't want to make, any uh, mistakes there. If the line can just be serviceable. So, and then a defence where if the players can just do their own thing, I say coaching could be fine, but if they're able to hold their own and just repeat what they did last year, they could be a very solid team. They could make a surprise championship run, depending on the schedule, if things click together. But it could also have a lot of teething issues this year, but it may not. It might reflect poorly on the head coach, but if they do badly, I don't think he'll be to blame. But there's a lot of talent there. There is. I mean, from what I'm hearing, he was a head coach who was hired because the players really, really liked him. But as the guy I was listening to was saying, your players soon vanish in college football. So all the players that wanted him appointed there are gone. So this is a season that could go one of two ways. It could go disastrously wrong or it could go absolutely right. So, I mean, yeah, let's hope for them, for their sakes, it goes absolutely right. So the schedule, again... This is not a forgiving schedule at the start of it. So they are also on the road for the first two games. Away at Mississippi State. And then they're away at Navy. Navy ain't no pushover. Then they're at home to Arkansas State, North Texas, Temple and Houston. Then they're on the road to East Carolina and Tulane. Then they're at home, triple lot at home again. UCF, Tulsa and North Alabama. And then they finish off on the road against SMU. I mean... If you come out of that Mississippi State and Navy game one and one, and then, I mean, you've got a lot of home games against maybe some mid-opposition there, that the opportunity is there for you if you click quick enough. Yeah. I say Mississippi State are known for a pretty mean defense, so that week one is going to be a massive test for them. Navy as well. You know what Navy do. You know how to beat Navy, because there's a template there for beating them triple option defense side so one on one and then let's see if you can put a beat down on rice and then build towards houston which will be the big game if they've got any outside title aspirations they need to be unbeaten before they get to houston and be in a rhythm yeah yeah agreed so let's yeah it's gonna be interesting to see what they do um finish this off player to watch the safety Quindell Johnson he's six foot one 195 pounds he really shone in a secondary that is is finding its way at the minute he had 104 tackles four and a half tackles for loss had an interception a sack 12 passes defended and a fumble recovery last season so a very productive year for him and hopefully he can make that step up again now Ryan we're going to talk about our first service side We've not done a service side yet, and these are incredibly 
Well, they're fun teams to study, let's say, because they play the game so differently to everybody else. But we're, of course, talking about the Navy Midshipmen, established in 1879, some of the oldest teams going. They play at Memorial Stadium. Their 2021 season, eh, it was 4-8, and 3-5 and five in the AAC. I mean, generally, the service teams did incredibly well last year. Navy were the exception to the rule, but they nearly pulled off some big upsets last year. Like I say, they nearly beat Houston, but you mentioned there the service teams. They run the triple option. Just quickly explain the triple option to maybe people who are not so sure on it because it is very different to the way others play. Yeah, the triple option, you don't really pass much. Your receivers are blocking. You play a narrow formation. You have two or three backs that all cross each other and one of them will lead block to the other. And you play smash-mouth football and then occasionally you try catch a defence with a pass that maybe, if your QB knows how to throw them on 20, 30 yards, which some of them don't because they're not hired, they're not brought in to throw a ball. It's just don't turn the ball over, eat up as much clock as you can and basically try pummel the defence into submission until they get sore and tired and punch the ball in. So it works sometimes, but it, a lot of times it don't work. Yeah, it's um, you either like it or you don't like it, I think is the uh, the way to describe that. So I'll go through the rivalries, and these have one of the most esteemed set of rivalries I've ever done. We're going to talk about the first one because it's one of the biggest rivalries going. Of course, the, the inter-service rivalry with the Army Black Knights. Navy lead this series 62-53-7. to This is one of the most traditional, well-known rivalries in college football. It's part of what they call the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy Series that includes Air Force. They all have like a three-way battle with one another, and whoever comes out on the top wins that. So this inter-service rivalry, it's televised nationally. It's intensely contested. It is in a friendly spirit for the most part. Cause, you know, they are, a, they are all in the services together. Um, one of the long-standing traditions of this game is to conduct a formal prisoner exchange as part of the pre-game activities. So the prisoners are cadets and midshipmen who are spending the semester studying at the other academy because the services there, they spend time studying at the other academies as well. Uh, when this exchange is done, the students do have a brief reprieve to go back and enjoy the, the game with their respective service branch. Then they have to go back to the other side. Um, but I think the most fun part of this game is it creates some of the most beautiful, sexy, you know, eye-catching uniforms you'll see in college football. This is this is a great rivalry on the field and on the eye. Yeah, Navy last year had a helmet that was based on, oh, is it summit-type destroyer, naval battleship, and it was like a bony white. And then Army two or three years ago had big red all black uniforms with red lasers based on like a stealth bomber. They go all out for this one game of the year and it's pretty great. We play very similar football. They also have a tradition when one of them scars that active servicemen do like 50 push-ups on a board of wood held up by the crowd because they like to show off for each other who's the toughest, who's the strongest and fittest. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like Thanksgiving football. It kind of has its own day. And it's like no other times clash of it. 
No, it's it, it's very fun, and it's just something a little bit different there as well, isn't it? But yeah, it's a great game, and seriously, go and check the history of some of the uniforms from this game. They are some of the best you will see. Um, obviously, they've got the rivalry with Air Force as well, the third service team. Um, it's much newer, because obviously, I don't think the Air Force was around much in the 1800s when this first started. As I say, they all, they all compete for the Commander-in-Chief trophy, um... Air Force, I think, have won it the most times. They've won it 20 times. They're a very formidable team right now. They narrowly missed out on a conference title this season, uh, last season. And Air Force lead the series 33-22. to 22. The other, well, a few more. The other big rivalry that people know about is with Notre Dame, Navy Notre Dame. This is another long-standing rivalry. Notre Dame have really dominated this, 80 to 13 to 1. However, this all came about because during World War II. A lot of schools struggle with funding for their football teams, etc. Navy actually helped to keep Notre Dame financially afloat during World War II to allow them to keep their football program. And as thanks for that gesture, Notre Dame play Navy in a game annually. So-called debt of honor there, um, you know, to thank them for keeping them in business. It is mostly a one-sided rivalry, but both sides love it. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice story in the way, isn't it? And even though it's not the most competitive in the world, you know, the, you know the people on campus like it. The people at large like it. It's, it's, a, it's still a decent rivalry. It is, yeah. And don't quote me on this. Notre Dame are back in Dublin next year, and I think it could be neither. I think the Airlingus Classic next year could be Notre Dame Navy. I've heard. I know so that would be fantastic. If it is, I'm definitely going to go. But I know at least one of them are back. They could both be there. So they play like they like to play, play across the pond as well. It'd probably be a lot more fun than Nebraska and Northwestern that's coming up as well, won't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and then the other one. This is a fun one, actually. So they actually have a rivalry with Maryland as well. It's called the Crab Bowl Trophy. Now, this is a, a nasty rivalry. This stems back years. So the teams are only 30 miles apart. Maryland and the Naval Academy and it's but it's kind of based on a cultural thing this is it's viewed that Navy are quite elitist you know they have the structure the discipline that comes with a military academy whereas in Maryland itself it's sort of a blue-collar worker type area so there's always been sort of cultural issues between these two the series started in 1905 but it's been put on hold twice so the first time Maryland quit in protest because Navy they said that Navy had won the game on an illegal play so that was a 16-year gap where the fixture wasn't played. The second time it was put on hold, Maryland stole Navy's goat mascot a few days before this game, and then during the game itself, one of the Maryland players twice gave the one-fingered one salute to a load of high-ranking Navy officials who were at the game. He literally went up to them and gave them the bird as they were. Did it twice. So Navy chose not to renew the contract and it was another 40 years until they would start playing again. And even then, back in 2005, Maryland refused to play Navy in bowl games. They did it twice. They came up with excuses saying that they couldn't. But I mean, you know, this this is this is a, a series that has a lot of nasty history behind it. But they play for the Crab Bowl trophy and what that is, it's a pewter bowl that overflows with pewter crabs. That's an interesting one, but... Yeah, these two teams do not like one another. No, it's it's very childish, isn't it? Like you say, it's spilled over from what started off as pranks and yeah. being scamps to disliking each other. I don't agree with flipping off servicemen. No. I imagine that player probably got a massive telling off from his head coach. 
But, yeah, the fact the fact that they now just choose not to play one another and will actively avoid each other is quite funny. Yeah, the the series is on hold at the minute. It's, um, it's been on hold for a couple of years. So yeah, a very interesting rivalry history for for Navy. They also do have ones with Rutgers, SMU, and Pittsburgh, but not to the degree of the others. So the Kent, the coach, Ken Niumatalolo. This is his fifteenth season. He's a very long-term coach with the midshipmen, and to be fairness, he's had a lot of success with them over the years, so he's one of only two Navy head coaches who's ever managed to beat Notre Dame on three occasions. He managed it twice in a row at the end of the noughties, I think it was 2008, 2009, and then beat them again in like 2013. He's got five Commander-in-Chief trophies. So he's won the inter-service rivalry five times. He's got six bowl wins and 11 attempts. He's absolutely kicked the hell out of armies over the years. He had 10 winning... He had, I think he like won nine of the first ten games he had against Army, so he's whooped them over the years. And he's actually got ten winning seasons out of 15, which has been a pretty good record for him. However, they have fallen on hard times recently. Three of the last four seasons, they've had four wins or less. Um, in the season that they didn't, though, they went 11-2 and two and they won a bowl, so that was weird. But they really need to do with finding some form again. But overall, this coach has done incredibly well with Navy over the years. Yeah, they've done really well. And they've sent players to the draft as well. Like I said, they've not found their feet. I'm pretty sure Keenan Reynolds, I think, was Navy quarterback. And Malcolm Perry two years ago. I think they both were. But I think they struggled to make an impact because they tried to put a QB receiver. So it's never easy. But no, they, they produce super athletic and are so disciplined as well. Yeah. They are indeed. Um, so the team itself, the quarterback, is Ty Lavatai. So service teams play triple option football. The quarterback is essentially a non-factor, as Ryan mentioned earlier with this. But as far as service quarterbacks go, Lavatai is probably one of the best ones they've had in a little while. He rushed for 371 yards and seven touchdowns last year. He passed for 449 yards, got five touchdowns, two interceptions, which is not too bad there for him so he's a decent quarterback the strengths sound no usually the service teams are built on the strengths of their run game but navy over the last few years have had a pretty good defense which is sort of rarer for service sides they were 44th in run defense success last year although it was 89th in the past game but it's still pretty decent but they have to contend with the loss of diego fago the big linebacker from last year who we were mentioning for the detroit lions but this DCU's been there. History says he'll still put a good defense out. Now, the weakness is the offense, actually. Their roster strength is ranked 131st in the country, which is dead last. There is no team that apparently, on paper, has a team worse than they do. The offense has been awful the last two years. They were 129th in passing success last year. That is understandable, given they're a triple option team. But they were 113th in rushing success. Now, when your entire game is predicated on the run in the triple option to be ranking 113th in rushing success it's a question of when not if you're going to lose the majority of your games and of course they don't have the usual portal kind of activity that other teams do they get their guys through the services so yeah this is this is a team whose offense is ranked bad at the minute but i mean with ty lavatai potentially they could do something this year because he's a decent quarterback yeah He's a good quarterback, but will the offense get much better? I don't, I don't think so. Like I said, they've lost a lot of pieces. 
the offense requires a lot of moving pieces as well. Yeah, it's just hard. And like you say, you can't just recruit players to a naval academy because when you graduate, you go you go to war, you go to the navy. Like you say, you don't go to the NFL because you've got you have to get permission to be waived. To like Malcolm Perry did, he applied to leave the navy to play football. So they can't just bring in transfers. That's not how it works. You can't just go join the academy. So, unfortunately, out of, out of probably every team in the FPS, they're one of the least attractive sides because they don't play attractive football, and you don't you can't get a career out of it. No. So they're kind of stuck with it. Is they kind of need future soldiers, yeah, to learn how to play football. So when you lose a player, trying to replace them is very hard. So you do have to give kind of give the benefit of it out to a head coach but i agree that if it's a bad year after like 11 great years four bad ones at some point someone's got to say well enough's enough someone's got to come in and try change something because what we're doing just isn't working no agreed and it's a shame but you know hopefully overall his career there will be recognized as success which it has been but like you say times change and this schedule is very very unforgiving for them this year. I'll just list the away games they've got this year. So they're away at East Carolina. They're away at Air Force, who nearly won their conference last year. They're away at SMU, Cincinnati, Notre Dame, and UCF. <laughs> what sort of an away schedule is that? That that They could potentially lose every single one of those pretty handily. And then the home games, they're at home to Delaware, Memphis, Tulsa, Houston, Temple, and then of course they finish off against Army. But I mean, that's rough. it's going to be a bad year. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a it's going to be a rough year. Even against like the likes of Tulane, if they return the same kind of numbers they did last year, they will struggle because they're not built to stop the pass and they can't pass the ball. So scoring will be a, a big issue this year. Yep, absolutely. Um, the player to watch. Um, the edge linebacker safety hybrid John Marshall. Yes, he is a hybrid at all three positions. He's 6'2", 204 pounds, very versatile veteran. He's part defensive end, part linebacker, part safety. They pretty much play him everywhere. So he's got 116 tackles, a sack, an interception, four passes broken up, two fumble recoveries, nine tackles for loss over the last two seasons. So good productivity there, but... Yeah, just sort of a Swiss Army knife on that defense. Now, one of one of your favorite teams this year, or one of your favorite quarterbacks this year, sorry, maybe not favorite team, but of course we're talking about the Southern Methodist University Mustangs, also known as SMU. They were established in 1915. They play at the Gerald J. Ford Stadium. Pretty sure that's an old American president, but I could be wrong. Um, twenty twenty one season, they went eight and four, but they were four and four in the ACC. So they had big problems in conference last year against some of the better teams. The rivalries. So another couple of good ones here. So the big rivalry is with TCU, and this this is going to be nasty this year because there's another added tweet to this. So this is an in-state rivalry. They play for the Iron Skillet. Now, for those who don't know, a skillet is a pan. Yeah. So there's two different versions of the story as how this came to be. So SMU's website claims the following. So they began. So SMU's website says the tradition began in 1946. So during the pre-game festivities, an SMU fan was frying frog legs 
Now this is big because the TCU they're called the Horned Frogs. So apparently he was frying frog legs as a joke before the game and a TCU fan seeing this went over and told him to stop eating the frog legs because it went well beyond the rivalry. And they said that whoever won the game should get the skillet and the frog legs as a symbolic gesture. So SMU won the game and the skillet and the frog legs went to SMU and eventually the tradition was that they were passed to and from one another. Well, I guess the skillet was because the frog legs would decompose away. Now in TCU's side of the argument, the TCU magazine says that the battle for the iron skillet occurred again in 1946, but it was SMU student council who proposed the idea of presenting a trophy to the team. TCU accepted the idea. The two governing bodies met in Dallas to set up the rules and it became known as the iron skillet. Neither one explains really why the hell a skillet, but which one do you believe? The the student cooking up frog's legs or the two the two universities coming up with an idea to fight over a skillet? I know which one I want to be true. <laughs> TCU are probably telling the truth, but SMU's is a lot better and interesting. It, I, it needs to start with at least some rivalry. So if they just sat down and said, yeah, we don't like you, you don't like us, let's pick a random inanimate object to make us a trophy. It's just a bit of shit, isn't it, really? It is. A skillet. I just, I'm just good that there's not more like this in our country. We have football clubs and that that are steepled in rivalry and all this sort of stuff, but we don't fight over iron pans and paddle boats and, you know, tennis balls or whatever. It, it's. I wish we had more of that in our sport here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, TCU and SMU, and it's going to be much bigger this year because Sonny Dykes, the head coach last year of SMU, he crossed battle lines and he's gone to TCU and that's that's kind of like the example of when Milan players in football when they cross the divide they are hated once they go in the other direction and anything that was done for them before they went is forgotten and this is the same with TCU and SMU isn't it they're not going to like Sonny Dykes for what he's done no that's that's treacherous yeah, treachery, exactly. That's the easiest and quickest way to put it. Um, the other rivalries they have, North Texas, we've discussed this. Navy, they play the Gantz Trophy for, and then Rice, we've also discussed that as well. So the coach, first season, replacing Sonny Dykes, his name is Rhett Lashley. So Lashley is yet another offensively-minded coach in this division. So he was long-term offensive coordinator and quarterback coach. Um, at several teams, he's been at Samford, Arkansas State, Auburn, Yukon, had a stint at SMU to start with, and then went to Miami, Florida, before coming back to SMU to take on his first head coach job there. He knows Dyke's offense well, he's played under him, basically ran similar in Miami, although given how they played last year, I don't know whether that's an endorsement or not, but he's got a ton of talent to work with on this offense, but the team... Finished bad last year. They went one and four after initially going seven and zero. Oh, so the team really, really hit hit a wall last season, and something needs to be done to fix them. But I mean, he knows the system. He knows how Dykes plays. Do you expect him to sort of stay the same, or do you reckon he's going to try and change it up there a little bit? I think he needs to change something because they don't know how to win games. I watched them multiple times last year, and they did not know how to win a football game. For all the great play, they just shot themselves in the foot as well. They make they make mistakes late on, penalties, uh, turnovers, turnovers are an issue. So, so something's got to change. Needs reining in a little bit because 
it got a bit carried away. They went a bit air raid when they didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does there. Ken's in the chat saying, what, no cornbread in this story? No, we've not had any cornbread-based trophies so far, but it would not be surprise me if there was one out there. So, yeah, first-year coach Rhett Lashley. However, like I've just said, he's inheriting probably one of the best offences in the division, and I'll kind of let you talk about this guy because you know a lot about him, but Tanner Mordecai is the quarterback. It's his second season at SMU. He was an Oklahoma transfer who just went off last year. It was his first year as a starter and you would have thought that he'd been playing football for 10 years. He threw for 3,628 yards, 68% completion rating, 39 touchdowns and just 12 interceptions. And he had a couple of hundred yards and a couple of uh, rushing touchdowns on the ground as well. But I mean, Christ, he was one of the reveals of the season at quarterback last year. Yeah, he was really good. Like you say, he got set he was sat behind Jalen Hurts, got fed up all Oklahoma, put his name in the portal, landed at SMU, and he has been like his player. He, he's, he's like 25, 26 now. He's been in college a long time, so he had to get that shot somewhere because if he'd have stayed at Oklahoma, he'd have never seen the field. And with the likes of, uh, who was it, Danny Gray and I can't remember his Robinson. name. Reggie Robeson had a fantastic tandem last year. And yeah, the offense at times was very unbalanced. That's why it cost them so many times in games because they felt like they just had to throw the ball on every down. But yeah, huge arm, accuracy, questionable, but could make splash players and also is tough and can stick in the pocket. So for a first-time QB, you know what you're getting. A guy that's going to go out in style. It's his last year of college. He's got no eligibility left. Outlier for the draft. Currently, I won't draft him, but he has got big aspirations. So he wants to put SMU back on the board. And he wants to prove as well that he knows how to win. Because it's uh, they were ranked like 14 in the nation, like 7-0, and looked great. And then their ass just fell out completely. They just didn't know how to win games. Yeah, they're going to need to do that. If they can do the same this year and then not mess it up near the end. Like you say, it might do wonders for Mordecai's draft prospects, but yeah, it's going to need another big season. But, you know, the team in general, so the strength, so the offense is legit, basically. That's what it is. So Mordecai's one of the best quarterbacks in the division, and it's not even close. The backfield, he's got Trey Siggers in the backfield. He went for 700 yards and nine touchdowns last year. They snagged a guy called Kamar Wheaton out of the transfer portal. Now, he's from Alabama, and only 12 months ago, he was a five-star guy. I think he was the ninth highest-rated guy in his draft class. This was a massive pickup for them. But he had a meniscus injury last year, which kind of kept him out. But he's healthy now. He's ready to go. But then Bama went and signed Jameer Gibbs. And he's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go elsewhere. And he's returned, I think, I believe it in saying it's much closer to where he lives. So they've got a good established guy in Trey Siggers. They've got a huge potential in Kamar Wheaton, who's won really to watch out for this year. Yes, they've lost Graham Robeson in the wide receiver core, but they returned Rasheed Rice, who was another one of a, you know, he was a really good receiver last year in that rotation. And they've attacked the portal for new wide receivers. So they've raided the Texas Longhorns. So Kelvonte Dixon and Joshua Moore are the two wide receivers in taking them both from the Longhorns. They've both been stop starting the side, but they've got the potential to break out. And if they've got Tanner Mordecai throwing at them, these are two names that could easily go on 
and break out this season. Uh, the run defense as well. They were ranked fourth nationally in run defense success last year, and they're returning a lot of that production. So they've got a great offense, and they're really good when it comes to defending the run. So a lot to work with there. But as Ryan also said, the explosive offense against them, the passing game, was a big weakness for them. So, you know, they ranked 90th in passing defense success. So teams who have at least a half-decent passing offense were really throwing on them and causing a lot of damage. And that's what caused so many of their problems there last year. But, I mean, this is a problem that's gone on there for years. Even under Dykes, they really weren't good at defending the pass. So they've really got to try and fix this. They've got a new defensive coordinator. He is Scott Simons. He's come from Liberty, where he was DC and... You know, when I think of Liberty, I don't immediately think of the crack defences that they put out there. I mean, I know it's only one problem amongst many, but it is a really big problem for them, isn't it? These chunk plays, these big plays, it hurts them quickly. So they'll put nice, good, long drives together and then, you know, a few seconds later, the level again. They can't afford to do that. No, and from what I remember, there's no standout DBs. There is no one to trust. There's no leader in that second draft. And teams know that. They get picked on. So it's a hell of a job to always come in as defensive coordinator because you're going to have to change something, whether it's formation or style or coverage. Mm. But, yeah, this offense will probably continue to score points, but they're going to have to find a way to stop them. They can't keep getting in shootouts every week because last season they wanted to be in a shootout every week and they really struggled. The TCU game was one of those ones where there were periods where they were totally in control, and there were periods where they got absolutely blasted. I'm pretty sure they end up. I'm pretty sure they end. They ended up losing, really close. It was a high scorer, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it was well, well in yeah. the forties for each of them. So yeah, that's, that's right. It's just how big it is for them, and and the schedule again. This is very brutal for a first year head coach. So the first two games are all right. So they're at North Texas, and then they're at home to Lamar. But read the schedule after this. So they're at Maryland. And when you've got a bad passing defense, the last thing oh, you want, oh. the last thing you want is Talia Tongvailoa and that high-powered Maryland offense throwing at you. Then they've got the game against TCU at home. Then they're away to UCF. Then they're at home to Navy and Cincinnati. Away to Tulsa. At home to Houston. Away to UCF and Tulane. And then at home to Memphis. I mean, you know, go two and zero in those first few games because if you don't. There might not be a lot of winnable fixtures on the stretch for you. Luckily for them, TCU, I think, will be awful this year. They were bad this year, and they've lost all the biggest players on their head coach. So this is a good chance for SMU to win the rivalry. But probably not else. a lot else is going to go their way on that defence. I expect Tanner Mordecai to probably be in top 10, 20 passing yards, touchdowns. It's just, it won't quit wins unless they fix the defence. And they will, he'll get frustrated very quickly. I mean, if he's bombing far 500 yards a game and they're losing, like, he's probably going to think, why am I even here? I mean, potentially, the one game I look at, that Maryland game, that could be that could be a shootout. Oh, that's going to be Tana Mordecai guy. versus Talia Tungvaya-Lower, that could be a shootout. Yeah, both turn the ball over a lot, but also, Maryland have got one of the best receiving calls in the whole nation. Yeah. So those two are just going to go toe-to-toe and expect at least that's going to be like a 44-40. Yeah. Last team with the ball will win. That could that could be a year-average Wake Forest game from last season. 
<laughs> probably 90 to 100 points. So yeah, tune into that one if you get a chance. Uh, the player to watch, mentioned him already, but Rasheed Rice, the wide receiver, it was always going to be someone in the passing offence. Uh, this guy's 6'3", 206 pounds. He's got 1,756 receiving yards and 15 touchdowns over the last three seasons. And now that Reggie Robeson and Danny Gray are gone, this is the guy who figures to be wide receiver one so he could be primed for a real breakout season here and he's got Mordecai slinging the ball to him so you know Robeson and Gray got drafted last year expect Rasheed Rice to be the uh, receiver you're hearing about from SMU because he's definitely going to be in the draft next year if he has a season like we think he might so yeah Rasheed Rice the wide receiver watch out for right now coming to our last three or four teams now which is good because Matt's going to kill me if I go on too long so next now, this is a team who was not good last year. The South Florida Bulls, also known Ooh. as USF. And Ryan's reaction there will tell you everything you need to know about their season. Um, established 1997. They play in the Raymond James Stadium, which, I, for the love of me, I think I thought that's what the Buccaneers played in as well. But, you know. They do. Oh, right. Are the they share it, I think. Oh, do they share it? All oh, right. I never knew I think that. So. so the 2021 season was grim. They went two and ten, and they went one and seven in the AAC. Um, yes, not a good year. Uh, the rivalry is with UCF, University of Central Florida. It's called the War on I-4. I love that name because it sounds like a 90s wrestling show like Rory's War used to be. The, the War on I-4, it has some class to it. UCF lead the series 7-6. to six. They've won the last five in a row. It's obviously it's a newer one. Um, South Florida dominated it initially, but yeah, UCF have had the hand on them in recent years. It's not really even been close. So the coach, Jeff Scott, he's in his third season. He was a long-term coach at Clemson, started as a wide receivers coach there. Added recruiting coach to his title before coming a co-offensive coordinator. Uh, spent 11 years there altogether before getting his first job at UCF. But the first two years there have been grim. He went 1-8 and eight and 0-7 and in conference in year one. And then he went 2-10 and 1-7 and in, in conference in his second year. So, I mean, technically an improvement. He won one game more in each. But, again, horrible schedule coming this year. This is a guy who kind of raised his stock um, with Clemson, thought, right, I'll go and get a job at a smaller side somewhere, turn them around and become the next big thing. But he picked the wrong team to bet his horse on. He did, yeah. Lacking in talent everywhere. He wasted a quarterback, Quinton Flowers, I think was the quarterback when he arrived, who was okay. He has picked up a big quarterback. So yeah. this year he will be hoping things are different. They've also gone. They've also got rid of that god awful neon chrome uniforms. If you can at least wear them, don't play like shit. That's all I will say. So they've gone to something <laughs> more conservative. But yeah, the Bulls. The Bulls are one of the bottom feeders in the AAC, and they get blown out awfully weakly. Absence me, it's not pretty. But maybe things will be different this year. Well, let's put it, like I said at the start of the show, there are a lot of teams who are cold as ice in this division, and, and they are one of them. But yeah, you mentioned the quarterback there, Jerry Bohannon. He was a one-year starter for Baylor. He's transferred into South Florida because, um, yeah, Baylor did him a little dirty last year. I still don't really know what went off, but he threw for 2,200 yards, had 18 touchdowns, seven interceptions, before losing his job to Blake Chapin at the end of the season, and he ended up missing the Big 12 championship game, in which the Baylor Bears became Big 12 champions, and it was kind of like, right, well, you're going to drop me, 
screw you, I'm entering the portal and leaving. And they need a quarterback like this. Now, he's only had one year and his numbers are okay, but he's a lot better than anything they've had in the past. Or recent yeah. past. Right, so to get benched before a championship game when you got them all the way there, that was kind of like when Carson Wentz got Philly, uh, got them all the way to the playoffs and then Nick Foles took over and just delivered their one-two final punch. It's kind of like that, like say he was hurt, so he entered the portal, but I had him. I wanted ASU to have a look at him before we landed our QB. Like say he got some decent offers. Don't know why the fuck he picked South Florida. Pardon my French. <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know what convinced him um, without knowing where he's from. It's it's an interesting decision. If it's a place where he hopes that he can get a long-term starting job, probably. Is he going to start with talent? Is he going to turn around this ship? Uh, who knows? He's got a big task on his hands. That he does, and that's where we get onto the strengths and weaknesses of the team. I've, I've started with the weaknesses. It's easy to state off what's wrong with them, so the team is just not good. The offense ranked 102nd nationally in total offense, and the defense ranked 123rd out of 130 in total defense. They were top five in terms of most penalized teams. Their turnover margin was 116th, so not only did they keep getting yellow flags thrown at them, they also kept losing the football on offense and defense. Bottom five nationally defending against the pass. I think they were 127th defending against the pass. They were 99th in success against the run. And the offense ranked 102nd in passing success. So they couldn't throw the ball. They couldn't defend against the run. They couldn't defend against the pass. So God knows how they managed to win two games. They were just rotten at everything they did last year. The strengths. Now, I've tried to be nice here. I've tried to find a few things. So obviously... Bo Hannon is going to be a steady hand at quarterback. He's going to improve, hopefully, that horrendous turnover margin they had last year. And, I mean, he's got some talent to work with. USF, they actually have the 73rd ranked roster in the country when it comes to roster strength. So, there's talent on that team. They've bought in 16 players through the transfer portal. 13 of them are from Power 5 schools. So, that is an injection of talent. But, at the same time, when you have that many transfers coming in, they've got to gel into your team. They've got to learn your scheme. That takes time, so it's not an immediate fix. The new defensive coordinator there is Bob Shoup. Um, he was an analyst at Miami, Florida, but he was a defensive co uh, coordinator not that long ago. He was at Mississippi State in 2018, and his defense was ranked number one nationally in the entire FBS. He had the best-ranked defense in the entire country. So that is a good start for you. If When you've got a defense that that's bad, a guy who knows what it takes to be the best is something that you need. And the one thing they did all right last year, they ran the ball pretty well. They were 49th nationally in offensive success with the run. They're returning the best two running backs. So, I mean, just maybe there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope for this team. But when you see those numbers all the way across the board, I mean, that's a heck of a job to rebuild. Yeah. It's bigger than a QB and some transfers. Like I said, there's fundamental issues. Yeah. Severe lack of discipline. Severe lack of concentration and protection of the ball. So those two things straight away, if you get flagged and turn the ball over, you won't be in games. Mm. The inability to pass the ball. Inability to defend the pass. So honestly, if they won four or five games this year, I think that'd actually be a pretty good season for them. <laughs> 
Okay, let me just, let, let's see, four or five wins you say. Let me list off their four, first four fixtures for you. So they play Howard at home from the FES, that's fine. The other three of their first four games, at home to BYU, away at Florida, away at Louisville. That's uh, the starting one and three. <laughs> and then after that, it doesn't get much easier. They're at home to East Carolina, away to Cincinnati, at home to Tulane, then they've got a double road trip to Houston and Temple, and then they finish off at home to SMU, away at Tulsa, and at home to UCF. I mean, yikes. That start might just hammer the confidence out of them by the time they come to some of those winnable games. Yeah. yeah. Let's say three, three or four wins will probably be a good year, but yes. I don't know if there's four winnable games there. No, no, definitely not. Maybe, maybe Howard, and that's it. After that, if... Yeah, I don't know. Anyhow, finishing this off, uh, the player to watch is the linebacker Antonio Greer. He is vastly experienced. He's coming off his best season yet. 92 tackles, 8 tackles for loss, 3 sacks, 2 interceptions, one of which was a pick 6, a pass breakup, 2 forced fumbles, and a fumble recovery. He's a two-time All-AAC player, and given the offences he's going to be up against this year, amongst a sea of struggle, he might be able to stand out and... Uh, really give himself a shot in the draft so he's the guy there moving on to the temple owls uh, now this is where we start getting to the, the the real bottom of the division here um the temple owls were really bad last year established 1894 play at lincoln financial field uh, the 2021 season they're actually three and nine so better than south florida but in the conference they went one and seven in the aac and they actually finished bottom because your rankings based on your in-conference wins, not your overall record. So these are the bottom feeders currently of the AAC. The rivalries are with Penn State and Villanova. They're both in conference. Penn State obviously whooped them 40 out of 45 times. They've won that. And they're even losing the series against Villanova. They play for the Mayor's oh. Cup. Yeah, they're a basketball school for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> their, their, their record against Villanova is they're losing 19 to 14 to one. They fight over the Mayor's Cup. It's a two-tiered wooden trophy with, of course, a bell adorning the top of it because that is, you know, bell. we can't go five minutes on this show without having a bell on one of the trophies. The coach, Stan Drayton, he's 51. This is his first season. He is a vastly experienced running backs coach. He's held the position with 13 different teams. He's also got NFL experience with... The Green Bay Packers, three years there as offensive quality control coach and special teams coach, and the Chicago Bears as a running back coach. So already I don't like him because he's been with two of our divisional rivals. Last job was with the Texas Longhorns. He was assistant head coach, running back coach, run game coordinator. So he's kind of been preparing for a top job. Um, but this is, yeah, could not be a harder assignment here. The team finished dead last in the conference last season. His roster strength for this year is ranked 118th nationally out of 131. And yet again, the schedule is hard as it can get. So, good luck. <laughs> that, not the position you want to be in as a first-year coordinator. Well, at least there's zero expectations. There's yeah. absolutely no expectations <laughs> at all. See, Temple a few years ago had a really good quarterback, and Michigan State fans should know him because it was Anthony Russo, I think it was called, and I'm pretty sure he transferred to one of the Michigan schools to be the backup. So it's not like they've not even recruited one last few years. He just didn't stick around. So yeah, it's going to be hard this year for them. Didn't Russo get beaten out by the current starter? Um, oh, God, what's his name? They're talking about 
they're talking Peyton about Thorne, the, yeah. yeah, they're talking about the Spartans yeah. in the chat. But yeah, Peyton Thorne beat Anthony Russo out, so you know, hey ho. But yeah, some of those teams, the Temples, the Tulsas, the Tulanes, were good teams ten years ago, and now they're shocking, to say the least. But yeah, the quarterback. This is actually the first time when we've got a quarterback battle. Every other team's been settled so far. So, Dewan Mattis was the starter last year. He was a touted transfer who came in from Georgia, but he had a bad year. Played seven games, through for 1,223 yards, had six touchdowns, four interceptions, and a sub-60% completion rating. Doesn't rush either. Now, his challenge, and you might know this guy, Ryan, given how much you've watched this team, the challenge comes from North Dakota State transfer Quincy Patterson the second. He didn't play I last year. He didn't play last year because of injury, but, you know, that's the competition. So you've got Dewan Mattis versus... Quincy Patterson the second. QP second is not bad. He's a dual threat quarterback. He's, he's pretty good though. I say he was uh, unlucky not to be in that uh, team that made such a good title run. So he's very solid. So he's actually got a pretty good job there. He's actually managed to work his way up despite coming off a year of injury. And you're going to see him play this year as well. I don't know a lot about Mathis, but I'd like to think that he's going to challenge that starting job. Yeah, like I say, could potentially get a good starter out the pair of them if they're really pushing one another. Um, so, started with the weaknesses with this team again, because obviously it wasn't a good one. So, this is a program that's been on a long, steady decline pretty much since Matt Rule left, and Matt Rule was there years ago. But, I mean, the offense was anemic last year. They were 100th and 123rd, respectively, in success against the run and the, in success with the run and the pass. And when you don't have a settled quarterback, you've got a new staff coming in. That's not reason for con that's not cause for a lot of optimism there, unless they can land on a quarterback. But the offense was terrible. On the defense, the rushing success rate against them was 109th in the country. You cannot afford to be bad against the run in this division. There are a lot of teams who run the ball very well, and been 109th, you're going to concede a lot of points against that. Um, strengths, you know, there is some individual talent on this team. I mean, that's going to be the first job of one of the new coaching staff. You know, try and utilize some of the better players they do have. Try and give them a fighting chance in some of these games against teams around them. The secondary was all right against the pass. It ranks 72nd nationally. It ain't great. But if the run defense can come into line with it, then it's solid and it gives you a foundation to work with. They are returning a few starters as well there, so hopefully they can improve there. But I mean, overall, this is just a big, big, big rebuilding job. And I think this is going to be a lot of short-term pain before any long-term gain. Yeah, this this is trying to not finish bottom. This is the team that's trying to be better than USF. And also... Just find a quarterback for next year. Like I say, if one of them wins the job well this year, that's great. If one of them, or you see both of them, or even three quarterbacks play this year, as long as someone can emerge as a starter, that's all they're asking for. But right now, it's a team that's full of question marks, got no real confidence or momentum to build off of. So, a pretty much a total wild card. It's not the worst position to be in when you've got no expectations and your job is basically safe because you're rebuilding. Yeah, and I mean, they have opportunity. I said the schedule was bad. It is, but the first four games actually present opportunity. So they are away to Duke, and then they've got three home games against Lafayette, Rutgers, and UMass. 
Now, they're all bottom feeders. Rutgers are a bottom feeder in the Big Ten. UMass are just a bottom feeder in the entire FBS. You've got your FCS game against Lafayette, and Duke ain't exactly that good either. They're probably one of the worst teams in the FBS. So, there's potential for two, maybe three wins in there, if you can be sort of the best of the worst, and at least that gives you a platform then. It's a lot better than the first games USF have got. So, if they're going to finish not on the bottom... This is where they're going to get it done. Like I say, even if they don't win, just to find a starter, just to get some rhythm, you couldn't ask for four better games when, one, zero expectations to win. Like I say, you're just finding your feet. Like I said, Lafayette, sure. Duke, Duke at ass. Like I say, it won't be easy week one when you don't know exactly what you're going into, but that could be an upset. I'd say any, any of these beating an ACC team could be classed as an upset even though Duke have just lost their start quarterback because uh, he's transferred to uh, one of the teams, I think we mentioned, the Sun Belt. So it's one of those where not a lot can go wrong. No. Win some games, great. If you lose them but you learn something, that's fine because the schedule, I imagine, only gets tougher from there, I guess. Uh, yeah, you would absolutely be right. Hang on, I've just scrubbed off it. Oh, God, where the hell am I? Um... Yeah, so yeah, after that it's bad. At Memphis, at UCF, versus Tulsa, at Navy, versus USF, at Houston, versus Cincinnati, at ECU, uh, East Carolina. So that end of the season is rougher. Anything from Memphis onwards is... If you're going 0-4 into that stretch when you've lost to those four teams, or 1-3... and your season's going to be rough, so yeah, that's 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 not going to be pretty. Hopefully they can get some wins early. Um, the player to watch I've got is the offensive tackle Isaac Moore. He is six foot seven and 305 pounds. He is the beast from Sweden. He's got the frame, he's got the athleticism, he has the starting experience to really interest NFL teams. He had some interest in the last cycle, actually, but he's decided to come back for one last hurrah. He's been starting for four years now. He even saw a few starts as a true freshman. So that's the youngest you can get. I mean, he's got the opportunity to really stand out here if he can protect the blind side of whoever wins the quarterback battle. And if he can help implement the run game, because you know the first thing Drayton's going to do as a career running backs coach is try and establish his run game. So that's going to be critical to have a left tackle who can get up into the second level, run block, and create gaps for your guys. And Moore does that really well. So if these if this team comes out with four or five wins this year against expectations and the run game is a lot to do with it, then Isaac Moore is going to be getting a lot of chatter when it comes to the NFL drafts. And yeah, keep an eye out for him. And plus, he's absolutely huge. Right, we're on to our last couple of teams now, which is good because Matt's going to be here in 15 minutes to kill me if I go over. Uh, we've got the Tulane... Uh, is it Tulane? It's Tulane, isn't it? I keep wanting to say Tulane, but it's Tulane. Is it right? Tulane. Yep, Tulane. The, yeah. the golden wave. I, keep, I just... The posh part of me wants to say Tulane. But yeah, uh, the Tulane Green Wave, established 1893. Another very old team. Play at the Yulman Stadium. Their record, 2021... 2-10, and ten, and they were 1-7 in the AEC. They were only kept off the bottom by Tulsa. Uh, their rivalries, um, LSU, the big rivalry here, it's called the Battle for the Rag. So the winner is awarded a satin trophy flag known as the Tiger Rag at LSU and the victory flag at Tulane. The flag is divided diagonally. 
it has the logos of each school placed on opposite sides and the seal of Louisiana in the center. LSU's name for the flag comes from a popular tune called the Tiger Rag, which is apparently performed by their Tiger Marching Band. Series is on hold at the minute. LSU lead it 70-22-6, to to but hey-ho, something different. It ain't a bell, it ain't a barrel, it's a rag. At least it's personal, don't say it's personalised, so I can get behind that. Yeah, yeah, it's something different at least, at least it's just not something that we've heard around ten times already. Uh, the other ones, rivals, Southern Miss, Auburn, Old Miss, sort of in-state ones there, guys near them, but there's not really a lot going on because Auburn and Old Miss are a lot better there. The coach, now, Willie Fritz, 62 years old in his seventh season there, highly, highly respected in league circles. Um, so I say he's very well tenured. He's been a head coach since 1997, back when Titanic came out, or maybe a year after Independence Day came out in 97. He's been a head coach since then. That's how long ago it was. He spent 13 seasons at Central Missouri in the FCS, finished 97 and 47 overall with them, but just, just one bowl win in two attempts and one conference title, which is not much over 13 years. The conference record was 72 and 44, so lost a lot in conference moved to Sam Houston State for four seasons went 40 and 15 won two consecutive conference titles although he lost the FCS championship game both seasons then moved to Georgia Southern for two years he went 17 and 7 with a conference title before moving to Tulane in six six seasons he's got two winning seasons he's won the AAC championship back in 2018 and won two bowl games, but they've always, for the most part, they've struggled in division. He's 16 and 32 in the division altogether. They've got three losing seasons in a row in conference. Last year was grim. They hit the hard reset button. They went with an incredibly young team. There were so many freshmen in this team last year. Um, so, I mean, by the numbers, they're not as awful as they appear. They may be underachieved a little bit, but this is a very young, very developing side. But, I mean, Willie Fritz, this is a guy who's he has been around a long time. He's had some success, but always seems to have faltered just when he gets to the pinnacle. Yeah, like I said, they're a good side. They're good to watch. Also, got great uniforms. I like their helmet design, that, that smiley Seconded. wave. <laughs> And if anyone remembers last year, was it Oklahoma Week 1? That insane game where they almost pulled off like, yeah. one of the biggest upset. It was phenomenal. Like I said, that, that shows you everything you need to know. They have got the heart of a lion, and they will fight. So, yeah, they've fallen on hard times. Like I say, they've uh, had some decent quarterback play in the last few years. It's a team that has had talent that has moved on that's not been replaced. And they should be doing better than they are. Like I say, to be that bad in conference play, was it 16 and 32? Yep. For a team that has won the for a team that has won the title and had winning years, it's bizarre. You can do all that great stuff out of conference, but when you're that bad, it's kind of surprising you've still got your job. Because usually you're in conference play is the first thing you're judged on, and Wilfred stinks in conference. So this feels like a huge year. If they go like two and six in conference play, I'd fire him. Yeah. Like, he, if, he, if he sucks this year in conference, he has got to go. But yeah, they're, they're a very young side and they've produced some good players in the last few years. 
No, exactly. And I think that's the thing. He's He hit the hard reset button last year. I think he realised he'd had a couple of stagnant years, really hit the reset button and just put loads of young guys in there. None more so than the quarterback, Michael Pratt. In fact, well, he was young. This is his um, third year. He's had two years. He was a starter as a freshman, got thrown in right away. Over his two seasons, he's thrown 4,187 yards. The accuracy is 56.5%, which is bad but again freshman starter you can kind of forgive that that should go better as the years go on 41 touchdowns and 16 interceptions so again another freshman who looks after the ball very well he's also got 383 yards and 13 touchdowns in the running game so in short yardage situations in the red zone actually very good as a guy who gets your touchdowns there the offense is incredibly young but he's finding his feet. The production's been very good. Is it going to make a jump this year? Who knows? But, I mean, he's got some good, young, freshman quarterbacks who could develop into the next big things. Those are good numbers outside the completions, and you can forgive that for two years in the freshman years. Yeah, averaging, what, 20, 20 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, just over 2,000 yards across the first yeah. two seasons. That's not bad for a team that is losing lots of games. So... You then look at where's the weaknesses. If it's not the quarterback, well, it's everywhere else. It's the defense. It's the run support. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's the thing is, is that how the team's so young. So the strengths here. So Tulane are returning a ton of production this year. So on offense, they're returning 88% of their production from last season. That includes, and that's fourth in the country. That's how much is coming back. So that includes the quarterback. Eight of nine wide receivers, all of their running back rooms, most of the offensive line, and I know their centre, his name, he goes by the name of Sincere Hainsworth. He's been touted as a big prospect going into the draft this year as a centre. He's he is NFL bound, so there is a lot of talent to be had there. And the thing, and I didn't actually think about this until I was listening to this part about them, and they mentioned it. This tells you a lot about the culture here, because when a team goes two and ten or one and 12 or whatever usually you will see a mass exodus of the better players going elsewhere to other teams because they don't want to stay there but obviously the players have seen something in the culture there that's saying to them look this was a bad year yes but we're young we're learning going forward we want to be here and experience counts for a ton in college football more so than in the nfl i mean between freshman and your sophomore years means a lot so I found that was very interesting. I mean, the defense was, was solid enough. It was very young. But again, it's breaking. You know, it has the potential to break out with how many young guys have so much experience on there. The linebacker room is one to watch as well. That's stacked, even with some experienced guys as well. But obviously the big weakness is this is all on paper. As it stands, they are a young team with potential, but they got absolutely battered last season by a lot of teams. And, you know, Will they make the leap this year? They've got a new offensive coordinator. You know, the head coach is maybe in a little bit of bother if he has another bad year. Can they see it through? But I think you fancy this team. If anyone's going to bounce back in this division in a big way, this could potentially be the team that does it. Yeah. I'd say they're built to possibly have a better year. Everyone's more experienced. Everyone's in their second or third year that... There's no real excuses now. They're not kids. They're not freshmen, a lot of them. Even if they're in their second year, they've got to step up now. And they've got to do it for the head coach. If they can't do it for themselves, do it for the head coach. Just to try save him. Like I say, if it could be his last year, like at least play for him and then try get 
five, six wins, that'd be a great return. Right? So if they were managed to sneak into bowl eligibility, then they could pat themselves on the back very well. Yep, yep, again, and the start is decent for them. They're at home to UMass and Alcorn State. Then they're away at Kansas State, who are minus uh, Skylar Thompson. They're at home to Southern Miss. Then they're away at Houston, at home to East Carolina, away at USF, at home to Memphis, away at Tulsa, at home to UCF and SMU, and then away at Cincinnati. But that's a schedule that could get them rolling if they get some good confidence-boosting wins out of the way. And, there's the, you know, UMass and Alcorn State, they're to be had. Yeah, their quarterback, game firing. Like I said, Alcorn State, no disrespect. UMass, one's an FCS side, one's a poor side. Like I say, 2-0, put up some big points, try get a shutout, and like I say, you're good to go, victory. You should, like I say, if they were like two wins last year, there's your two wins. That's match last season's total. Get that monkey off your back, and then look forward. They're going to, they definitely have to win more games than they did last year. Couldn't get a better start than that. No, absolutely not. And then the player to watch, Darius Hodges, the linebacker. There's a lot of young talent on this line, which I could have put in here, but the third-year linebacker was the one that really stood out. He had a really good season last year. 40 tackles, 16.5 tackles for loss, five sacks, one pass breakup, two forced fumbles. He did actually go into the transfer portal, but again, he chose to come back. So he sees something at Tulane that he likes. So... They run with quite a few of these edge linebacker hybrids on this team. I, I don't know if it's an intentional thing, but there's two or three of them, and Hodges is the best of them. So, you know, if this defense can sort of really grow into its own this year, then he'll be at the heart of that and expect that production to continue. So, yeah, Darius Hodges, the linebacker there. Right, now we're getting down to the last couple of teams, and I've really got to go quick with these because Matt is going to kill me. So, um, Tulsa, the Golden Hurricanes, established 1995. They play at Skelly Field. Had a decent record in 2021. They went 7-6. and six. They were 5-3 of three in the AAC, so above 500 in both. Rivalry with Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State win that 43-27-5. to to And Houston, we've already discussed that. The coach is Philip Montgomery. He is in his eighth season. Again, yet another offensively-minded coach. Spent a long time at Houston and Baylor. He was a mix of offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, and running back coach. Tulsa is his first head coach position, and really, this has been an up-and-down ride for him. So the first two seasons, he went 6-7, and seven, and then 10-3. and three. Things looked really, really promising, and then they nosedived. So they went 2-10, and 3-9, and nine, and 4-8 and eight the following three years. Before an innocuous-looking season, they went 6-3, and three, but they went and won an AAC championship because they'd gone 6-0 and in conference, and then they went all the way and won the championship out of nowhere. And then last year they went seven and six and won a bowl game. So it kind of is it. It started really well, then it went bad, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a championship and a lot of renewed optimism for that team. Yeah, he's been successful. Like I said, they're a successful franchise. They've played some good football. They've put some absolute hammerings on people. They're, they've been fun to watch. They can score a lot of points. They had a blip. I think that was a blip, genuinely. Those those three bad years, two, three, four wins, they seem to bounce back from that. So, yeah, they're riding, pardon the pun, on, let's say, a crest of a golden wave. They're, 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 they're doing pretty well right now, <laughs> and I expect them to be big player, I don't know. But, like I say, they'll be up there. Seven, eight wins. They're going to be looking to take some scalps this year. Yeah, yeah, you would, uh, you would hope 
so. So let's have a look at the team. Now, again, there's, there's good and there's bad in here. So the quarterback is Davis Brin. He's his fourth year, did not have the best of seasons last year. So he threw for 3,269 yards, which sounds good, but the accuracy was sub-60%, and he threw 18 touchdowns to 16 interceptions. Now, when you're throwing pretty much one-to-one -one on your touchdown-to-interception ratio, that's bad, but it was his first year as a starter, so while it can't be fully excused, maybe some nerves, maybe some, you know, he got the yardage, he just needs to... It's all about ball security and accuracy for him this year. Tulsa really need him to work on that because that's going to be critical going forward. Um, so the weaknesses. Team has lost a lot of players here. So they are returning a smidge over 50% production. That's it. They've lost four of their 5-0 line. They've lost Josh Johnson, the star wide receiver. He is with oh. the Lions now in the NFL. They've lost their lead running back and five of their top seven pass catchers. <laughs> it's, you know, his his offense has only ranked in the top 50 two times in seven years in charge, which for an offensively minded head coach is not very good at all. And with that sort of loss this season, <sighs> he's got a job on his hands there. But on the flip side, the Tulsa defense of the last few years has been really good. It's been really smothering, and it's been an asset to this team. They're really good when it comes to defending the pass. The run game needs a little bit of work, but again, they've got 48% production coming back, and that is it. It's a lot to lose on both sides of the ball. So while Tulsa did okay last year, I mean... Can you lose that much production in one off-season and, and still be the same as before? It's going to be difficult. No. Your quarterback is relying... The quarterback is trying to not throw interceptions and ball security. So what do you do? Oh, you lose all the receivers and you're giving people that don't know him. He's got to build brand relationships, get timing with them. I've got a feeling he... Brin is probably going to struggle again this year. It's basically a brand new offense, so it's going to be hard for him to get over that poor ratio. So it's they're not going seven and six, I don't think. Let's say with that total lack of production that's returning. So it's it's going to be another down year. It sounds like it could be another blip. Yeah, and and they've got some nasty out of conference fixtures this year. So the the schedule reads at Wyoming. They're at home to Northern Illinois, who are coming off a championship season, at home to Jacksonville State, away at Old Miss, at home to Cincinnati, away at Navy, away at Temple, at home to SMU, at home to Tulane, away at Memphis, at home to South Florida, and away at Houston. But I mean, Old Miss, Cincy, away at Navy, away at Temple, at home to SMU, that's... And, and starting away at Wyoming, they're no mugs. And no. That is a baptism of fire. For a, for, you could be trying to save your job and it's not the schedule you want. You've got a QB that clearly was not confident last year and the pass percentage was poor, the interceptions were too high and now he's going to have probably four new receivers. It's not exactly a recipe for success. No, it's not. It's really poor and uh, yeah, I think they're going to struggle big time last year. The, the player to watch, um, the, another linebacker, God, I've I must subconsciously like linebackers, but Justin Wright is in his fifth season, a second season as a starter. The levels of production in the last two years as a starter 
are big. 145 tackles, 15 tackles for loss, 5.5 sacks, 2 interceptions, a forced fumbles. This is one of the big leaders on the Tulsa defense. And with the offense been in such a you know, uh, such a vulnerable position this year from the amount they've lost and with how much the defense have lost, he's going to have to step up not just as a productive linebacker but as a leader on this team as well. So I would expect him to be the leading tackler on this team if he stays healthy and I think he's going to be making some noise going into the 2023 draft. Um, so that is Tulsa. Right, um, so the last team we have and... I'm ashamed to admit this, but we've got you the University of Central Florida to do. I was looking through my notes, and I thought I'd done everybody, and it turns out that I'd looked at USF and not UCF, because they're so similar. So I've not actually done any notes on UCF, and because we're overrunning anyhow, Ryan, I'm just going to go to some thoughts for you on UCF, because obviously you know a bit more. They've, I'm, for anyone who's listening on the audio pod, I will record a separate thing for UCF and put it on the end so that it still appears like we've done the full conference rundown. But we'll just have a quick chat about them here. So UCF, I can't go all through the things there, but they've been a good team over recent years. They struggled a little bit last year. How are you expecting UCF to do this year in terms of the AAC debate? Holy. Lost the star QB, Dylan Gabriel. Last year, he's having a great year. Broke his collarbone. Oh, I can't remember the game. Was it? Might be BYU or Louisville, I can't remember. Ruined his thing and he's now transferred. A few years ago, like I said, they had Mackenzie Miller look really good. Going back four or five years ago, one of the best teams in the nation went 12 and 0, crowned themselves national champions. Everyone kind of believed them. They, they were the big thing then. They were the scary side that no one wanted to play a group of five. Had these fantastic rocket ship and cosmic uniforms. Please, people, go back and look at them. They've changed their logo this year. The Black Knight on the helmet has changed. I know that for a fact, so they look a little bit different. They're struggling. They're, they are on a decline since that historic like 12 and all year. Things have struggled. They're now down to a new QB. They've lost more players to the draft. Let's say they're their last best receiver. Oh, the name forgets me. He went to the draft. I think maybe last year, year before, but yeah, it's a team that is low on confidence, has lost its franchise leader and starting quarterback, and may struggle to compete this year. The UCF Knights that we know are probably no more. They've, they've slowly been picked away in the last few years, and they need a big bounce back. Yeah, absolutely, I agree there. And I say, if, and the one a million, one in a million chance any UCF fan is listening, I apologise that I wasn't able to finish this one like I say I, I thought I'd done it so in the audio pod I will put a section in for UCF before before we uh, air that one live so just to round this off because like I say I am roundly aware Matt is going to kill me for overrunning we talked last week about the Sun Belt, who we predicted the championship game was going to be who maybe the people who were going to win the whole thing was so cards down on the table who are your two teams and who's going to win it outright yeah, well, Houston are going to win it. Who are they going to play though? That see the SMU offense has got enough in it, but I don't see them getting there because I don't trust. I don't trust the defense. So, oh, this this is difficult. I'll say Houston v Cincinnati. 
but this time Houston get revenge. Ooh, I like that. I didn't think you were going to go Cincinnati. I thought we were going to agree this week, so I'm going to actually take SMU to do it. I'm going to say it's a Houston and SMU championship game, but Houston are going to win it simply because Clayton Tune will absolutely fine-tune the hell out of that defense when he gets his hands on the ball. I mean, the run defense is there for SMU. Literally, all they have to fix is that passing defense. Even if they made it mid, they would be instant contenders to win against Houston. Whether they can do that remains to be seen, but they're the two highest-powered offenses probably in the division at the minute, and I fancy them to both be there. I mean, they've got some rough schedules in, but, you know, we'll see there in, in regards to that. But, I mean, for me, it, it shapes up to be a good division this year, doesn't it? You know, there's three, four teams potentially there at the top. You've got some sleepers like Memphis, like maybe Delane in there, you could, UCF if they decide they want to get a better, but potential for a lot of good games this year. Yeah, it's 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 wide open. You've got, like say, you've got your Houston's and your Cincinnati's, and then you've got the dog pile in the middle, where you've got your Seagull, your SMU's, you've got uh, Tulsa's, you've got uh, even Navy. Let's say if Navy are able to just fix the defence and work on their offence, I feel like they could have a good year. They can turn around what they've done last year. Like I said, I fully believe in uh, their head coach. So, yeah, it's going to be really difficult. The teams that are struggling, Temple, UCF, teams like that, like you say, they're, uh, they're probably just trying to improve on last year, but no one wants to come bottom. No, no. And it's <laughs> it's tough to finish bottom in this division. So let's see. Let's see what happens. But, yeah. Another interesting conference to look forward to this year. Thank you to everyone who's joined in in the chat there with us. I know there's been a lot of Michigan Michigan State stuff going on in there. We'll get the Big Ten preview up soon so you can all come in and really lay fire at one another on that. But hopefully you've learned a little bit more about the Americans as a result of that. Again, sorry to the UCF fans. I will round that out for you. And sorry to anyone who usually listens on Twitch. Like I say, just it just wasn't having it as a multi-stream today. So I wanted to get a stream out. And, you know, hopefully you can come and listen to it on here instead. Um, right, that is us done for this week. Uh, you got anything else, Ryan, before we go? Or we're all good? No, I don't think good. so. I will just say that this is one of the conferences to watch out for uniforms. Yeah. Tulsa and Tulane. Tulane always look really good because they have these really nice colorways of, like, blue and green, which look a bit look like palette, a bit childish colors, but, yeah, they look fun. And UCF always look top notch. Yeah, exactly. And Navy, when it comes to the Army game, you all get some crackers there, and you know they have a history of knocking out one. So yeah, one to watch for the uniform. So thank you everybody for joining in with us. Um, we will be down to our last two Group of Five conferences soon, so it'll either be the MAC or the Mountain West. We'll do next week. Kind of fancy the Mountain West because we like some of their teams in there and the rough nature of some of the players that come out of it but we'll let you know in due course um just going to go through the housekeeping before we go so obviously the main color the main roar of the lions detroit lions podcast will be back 
on Monday. If you've not already watched the one from Monday, do go and check it out. We talked about the incoming training camp period, some of the battles in there. It was a good show there. And then I think next week we'll be doing some previews to our fandom towards the Detroit Lions. And Hard Knocks is on its way. So that is going to be a lot of fun. Mimran will be back next week with the College Pod as well. So keep an eye out for that. Of course, you can find us everywhere over the internet on facebook you can find us at detroit lions fans uk one pride worldwide that is our facebook group and then our actual page roar of the lions uk you can find us on there on youtube you can find us at roar of the lions uk obviously you'll have found us this way this evening if you could sub to us that would be great we numbers are slowly going up there on twitch you'll find us at rotl underscore uk is the same you will on twitter and instagram and of course you'll find us on our website roar of the lions uk dot com Lots of all articles will be going up on there shortly in regards to the season. But for now, it just remains to me to thank everyone who has joined us this evening. And if I don't see you again, it's because Matt's put his hands through the computer screen and ringed my neck for overrunning. So I really do apologise. And if this is the last of seeing me, it was nice to chat with you all. So <laughs> until next time, I'll say this as we do always. Go One Pride! And as promised, ladies and gentlemen, there is one last team for us to have a little look through before we go off the air today. I will be doing this one on my own because I've had to do a little addition to the end of the pod because I forgot to do notes on one of the sides I didn't check properly before we came on air. So apologies to any fans of the University of Central Florida Knights who may be listening. They are the last... Of the American teams we need to take a look at. So as I say, we'll get straight into it. The University of Central Florida Knights, they were established in 1979. They play at the FBC Mortgage Stadium. Their 2021 record, pretty decent. They went 9-4 and four overall, although they struggled a little bit more in the division. They went 5-3 and three last season. Rivalries, well, obviously, the Florida rivalry is there. The University of South Florida is the big rivalry here. We spoke about that a little bit earlier. And then they have a rivalry with the Cincinnati Bearcats as well. Again, something we already discussed earlier. Um, Coach. Coach, his name is Gus Malzahn. He is into his second season with the Knights. Um, He's been a head coach since 2012. Uh, started off with Arkansas State, um, only had one year there, went nine and three and seven and one in conference um, with them in the Sun Belt, managed to win them the conference title in the only year that he was there before he made a quick move over to the Auburn Tigers in the SEC. He was there for eight years Long-term coach, first season, went 12-2, and two, won the conference title with them there. Followed it up with another three successive winning seasons, went 8-5, and 7-6, and 8-5 and five again before doing the big one. He took the SEC championship game in 2017. The Auburn Tigers went 10-4, and four. they went 7-1 and one in the conference, and yeah, they won the SEC, and that is no mean feat in this day and age to take an SEC championship. So, you know, big reward there for him. And then another three winning seasons after that went eight and five, nine and four, and then six and four. Obviously, last year, not on par with some of the other ones he'd had there, but he never had a losing season. So that's something very rare that you see. 
coming out of the SEC, especially with a team not named Georgia, not named Alabama, to go eight years there and not suffer a losing season. There were a couple of conference, you know, in conference um, standings that he lost. There was a two, a two and six in there, a three and a five. But again, against some of the teams you're competing in, the record's really good. He left with a record of 68 and 35 overall. And his SEC record was 39 and 27. Also won two bowl games in his time there as well. They got bowl eligibility every season. He was ranked in the coaching rankings as high as second in his first year. So this is a guy got a lot of credibility behind him. And yeah, he's never had a losing season. 2012, when he started coaching, never had a losing season. First year with UCF, as I mentioned, he went nine and four, six and three in the conference. So, yeah, there was a little bit of improvement to be done there, but it was a good start. And he won the Gasparilla Bowl. So, a bowl win in his first year. But this year could potentially be tricky for him. He's uh, another offensive coach, as we've mentioned so many times already. The American is absolutely stacked with offensively minded coaches. Um, so, yeah, before this, he was an offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach, and he's going to need to do a job with his quarterback this year. So that moves us on to the quarterback battle at UCF. So Dylan Gabriel was the main man there for the last few years, a hell of a gifted quarterback, but he got injured earlier on last season and he's now transferred out. He's gone, I believe, over to the Oklahoma Sooners in the Big 12, which leaves him with a quarterback battle on his hands. So in relief of Dylan Gabriel last season, he had to turn to a freshman by the name of Mikey Keane. It was his first year in college football, played 11 games, um, completed 173 of 272 passes. That's a 63.6% completion rating. That is very respectable for a freshman quarterback. He got 1,730 yards passing, 17 touchdowns and six interceptions. So as a freshman, he's got a good completion rating. He hangs on to the ball very well, doesn't give it away very often. Got a rushing touchdown as well, although that is not his forte. He's really sort of a pocket guy there. However, Gus Malzahn is known for been a guy who likes to run the football and his system requires more of a dual threat quarterback as you were and obviously Mikey Keane's not one of those so he went into portal he went and took the old miss quarterback uh John Rice Plumley. now if Ryan was here he'd probably know about him because he knows a lot more about old miss than I do John Rice Plumley saw was, was fighting it out with Matt Corral uh, for the job at Old Miss a few years ago. Um, played in 2019. He's a lot better with his feet than he is passing the ball. So in 2019, he was sort of splitting duties with Matt Corral at this point, but he led the Old Miss team in rushing. He rushed for 1,023 yards and 12 touchdowns. He had five games where he'd rushed 100 yards or more, but on the passing side, his passing completion rating was 53%, only got 79 of 150. He threw for 910 yards with four touchdowns and three interceptions. So, yeah, not exactly figures that really jump out to you there. And then when Lane Kiffin came to Old Miss, he picked Matt Corral. So Plumley instead went out to play wide receiver 
So he's been playing the last couple of years at wide receiver. He's still been sort of doing his quarterback duties and that as well. He's been back up to, um, yeah, he's been back up to Matt Corral there, but he's not been used very often. But So he comes in. So there's a choice there now at UCF. Do they go with the guy who's not really played quarterback over the last few years, but is a threat on the ground, which is what Gus Malzahn prefers in his offenses? Or do they go with the true freshman who, to be honest, those numbers are really good. And if he continues to improve the way he did, you know, last season, then you kind of find it hard to be able to kick him out of this team. So this is going to be a really interesting battle. I've got no idea who's going to line up under center week one. Me personally, I think, I think the freshman should get it, but you never know. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to see what happens there in terms of the team itself, though, the strengths and the weaknesses there. So this, this is a team that always rushes the ball really well. They've got a very deep and very talented running back room that's highlighted by, oh, what's the guy's name now? There's um, Isaiah Bowser. Sorry, that's it. So Isaiah Bowser, we're going to talk about him in a bit because he's the player to watch here for me. But yeah, UCF for a team that run the ball very well. They've passed it good in recent years because of Dylan Gabriel. But like I say, he is gone now. What are they going to do this year? Because they are weak at wide receiver. They do have one guy who really stands out there for them. But outside of that, the depth is a little bit thin. So it's going to be interesting to see what goes on there. The defense is, you know, also very good. I mean, UCF have a really good secondary and they are returning most of that secondary here this year. The defensive production returning is 66%, number 52 in the country. So it's on the side of they're getting a lot more of their production back than teams around them are. I mean, basically at every position, they're too deep for potential starters. That's that's just how stacked this roster is there. On the defensive line, five of their top seven guys are returning there. Now, they struggled against the run a bit last year. They were seven, They were ranked 78th in yards per rush defense, so they struggled to stop the run a little bit. But as we've said quite a lot already, in college football, experience counts for a lot. There is a big leap sometimes between your freshman year and the years after that. So, you know, these guys all come back. They've got another year in the bag. They're a year more experienced and say most of the unit is returning. So that should hold them in good stead for this upcoming season. So, you know, I would expect the defense to be one of the calling cards for them this year. The run game and the defense is going to be pretty decent. It's just remains to be seen how this offense is going to run through the quarterback. Obviously, if they go with Plumlee, it's going to be ground-based. If they go with Keen, then they're not going to be afraid to air it out a little bit as well as run the ball there as well. So, I mean, what are the prospects for this team? The schedule is a little bit of everything here. So the schedule starts off pretty decent for them. So they start at home to South Carolina State. Then they're at home to Louisville, which is a very tough prospect. But Louisville like to air the ball out quite a bit. They do run it a fair amount. But, you know, Malik Cunningham is coming into a year where he really needs to prove himself as a thrower as well as a rusher. There may be some opportunities there for them to starve him and possibly put an upset in there, but it's going to be a tough game for them. Then they're at Florida Atlantic, and then they're at home to Georgia Tech. So those first four games, there's a possibility for them to be three and one there. If they come out three and one and give Louisville a good game, then it shows that there is life after 
Dylan Gabriel there for them. Then they're at home to SMU and Temple. They are away at East Carolina. They're at home to Cincinnati. Then they are at Memphis and Tulane. Then home to Navy. And then they close the season out with, of course, it's rivalry week. So they'll be playing the University of South Florida. So, I mean, the opportunity is there for these guys. It's just, it all depends on what's going to happen with the quarterback in terms of how that offense is going to do. But I think on the defensive side of the ball, they are going to be solid. And of course, these are one of the guys, they, 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 they're changing divisions next season. They're moving to the Big 12. They're going to need to get good quick because the level of opposition is going to be in a whole new ballpark when they move over there. So yeah, overall, it's going to be a very interesting season for the UCF Knights. And like I say, I'm intrigued to see where that quarterback battle goes. Um, In terms of the player to keep an eye out for, I did mention him already. So it's Isaiah Bowser, the running back. He is a sophomore. So UCF are going to run the ball a lot this year, regardless of what happens with the quarterback. They have a very deep and very talented running back room headed by this guy spent a few years up at Northwestern he got 1300 yards seven touchdowns there he a little bit of a passing threat as well uh, although not not too much he's, he's, he's more of a rusher than he is a catcher but you know came over to UCF last year he ran for 703 yards nine touchdowns caught nine passes for 75 yards he's he's had injury issues he was at in and out the team a little bit but from everything that I've read about in doing the research for this he does seem to be coming into this season healthy and you know this I know we've got a few running backs on the list for the American players to watch this year but th- this is a conference where they like to run the ball and you need to have a good run defense if you're gonna if you're gonna challenge for the title and and these these are possibly going to run the ball better than anybody so it's going to be interesting i'm looking forward to seeing the ucf knights here so um yeah uh apologize for not being able to get this in the show right away but uh yeah we got there in the end the american is going to be very a very interesting conference this year and we'll uh we will see what happens so i'm going to just transition this now into the end of the show and uh yeah we'll uh we'll see you again next week. Thank you very much.